When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 6, Chapter 2 of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Two, The Rat Hole. The reader must permit us to take him back to the Place de Greve, which we quitted yesterday with Gringoire in order to follow La Esmeralda. It is ten o'clock in the morning. Everything is indicative of the day after a festival. The pavement is covered with rubbish, ribbons, rags, feathers from tufts of plumes, drops of wax from the torches, crumbs of the public feast. A goodly number of bourgeois are sauntering, as we say, here and there, turning over with their feet the extinct brands of the bonfire, going into raptures in front of the pillar-house over the memory of the fine hangings of the day before, and today staring at the nails that secured them a last pleasure. The vendors of cider and beer are rolling their barrels among the groups. Some busy passers-by come and go. The merchants converse and call to each other from the thresholds of their shops. The festival, the ambassadors, Caponole, the Pope of the Fools, are in all mouths. They vie with each other, each trying to criticize it best and laugh the most. And meanwhile, four mounted sergeants, who have just posted themselves at the four sides of the pillory, have already concentrated around themselves a good proportion of the populace scattered on the place who condemn themselves to immobility and fatigue in the hope of a small execution. If the reader, after having contemplated this lively and noisy scene which is being enacted in all parts of the place, will now transfer his gaze towards that ancient demi-Gothic, demi-Romanesque house of the Tour Roland which forms the corner of the quay to the west, he will observe, at the angle of the façade, a large public breviary with rich illuminations protected from the rain by a little penthouse, and from thieves by a small grating, which, however, permits of the leaves being turned. Besides this breviary is a narrow arched window, closed by two iron bars in the form of a cross, and looking on the square. The only opening which admits a small quantity of light and air to a little cell without a door, constructed on the ground floor, in the thickness of the walls of the old house, and filled with a peace all the more profound, with a silence all the more gloomy, because a public place, the most populous and most noisy in Paris, swarms and shrieks around it. This little cell had been celebrated in Paris for nearly three centuries, 
ever since Madame Roland de la Tour Roland, in mourning for her father who died in the Crusades, had caused it to be hollowed out in the wall of her own house, in order to immure herself there forever, keeping of all her palace only this lodging whose door was walled up, and whose window stood open, winter and summer, giving all the rest to the poor and to God. The afflicted damsel had, in effect, waited twenty years for death in this premature tomb, praying night and day for the soul of her father, sleeping in ashes, without even a stone for a pillow, clothed in a black sack, and subsisting on the bread and water which the compassion of the passers-by led them to deposit on the ledge of her window, thus receiving charity after having bestowed it. At her death, at the moment when she was passing to the other sepulchre, she had bequeathed this one in perpetuity to afflicted women, mothers, widows, or maidens, who should wish to pray much for others or for themselves, and who should desire to inter themselves alive in a great grief or a great penance. The poor of her day had made her a fine funeral, with tears and benedictions, but, to their great regret, the pious maid had not been canonized, for lack of influence. Those among them who were a little inclined to impiety had hoped that the matter might be accomplished in Paradise more easily than at Rome, and had frankly besought God, instead of the Pope, in behalf of the deceased. The majority had contented themselves with holding the memory of Roland sacred, and converting her rags into relics. The city, on its side, had founded in honour of the Damoiselle a public breviary, which had been fastened near the window of the cell, in order that passers-by might halt there from time to time, were it only to pray. That prayer might remind them of alms, and that poor recluses, heiresses of Madame Roland's vault, might not die outright of hunger and forgetfulness. Moreover, this sort of tomb was not so very rare a thing in the cities of the Middle Ages. One often encountered in the most frequented street, in the most crowded and noisy market, in the very middle, under the feet of the horses, under the wheels of the carts, as it were, a cellar, a well, a tiny walled and grated cabin, at the bottom of which a human being prayed night and day, voluntarily devoted to some eternal lamentation, to some great expiation. And all the reflections which that strange spectacle would awaken in us to-day, that horrible cell, a sort of intermediary link between a house and the tomb, the cemetery and the city, that living being cut off from the human community, and thenceforth reckoned among the dead, that lamp consuming its last drop of oil in the darkness, that remnant of life flickering in the grave, that breath, that voice, that eternal prayer in a box of stone, that face forever turned towards the other world, that eye already illuminated with another sun, that ear pressed to the walls of a tomb, that soul a prisoner in that body, that body a prisoner in that dungeon cell, and beneath that double envelope of flesh and granite the murmur of that soul in pain. Nothing of all this was perceived by the crowd. The piety of that age, not very subtle nor much given to reasoning, did not see so many facets in an act of religion. It took the thing in the block, honoured, venerated, hallowed the sacrifice at need, but did not analyse the sufferings, 
and felt but moderate pity for them. It brought some pittance to the miserable penitent from time to time, looked through the hole to see whether he were still living, forgot his name, hardly knew how many years ago he had begun to die, and to the stranger, who questioned them about the living skeleton who was perishing in that cellar, the neighbors replied simply, It is the recluse. Everything was then viewed without metaphysics, without exaggeration, without magnifying-glass, with the naked eye. The microscope had not yet been invented, either for things of matter or for things of the mind. Moreover, although people were but little surprised by it, the examples of this sort of cloistration in the hearts of cities were in truth frequent, as we have just said. There were in Paris a considerable number of these cells, for praying to God and doing penance. They were nearly all occupied. It is true that the clergy did not like to have them empty, since that implied lukewarmness in believers, and that lepers were put into them when there were no penitents on hand. Besides the cell on the Greve, there was one at Montfaucon, one at the Charnier des Innocents, another, I hardly know where, at the Clichon house, I think, others still at many spots where traces of them are found in traditions, in default of memorials. The university had also its own. On Mount Saint-Genevieve a sort of Job of the Middle Ages, for the space of thirty years, chanted the seven penitential psalms on a dunghill at the bottom of a cistern, beginning anew when he had finished, singing loudest at night. Magna voce per umbras! and today the antiquary fancies that he hears his voice as he enters the Rue de Puy-Quiparlet, the street of the speaking well. To confine ourselves to the cell in the Tour Roland, we must say that it had never lacked recluses. After the death of Madame Roland it had stood vacant for a year or two, though rarely. Many women had come thither to mourn until their death, for relatives, lovers, faults. Parisian malice, which thrusts its finger into everything, even into things which concern it the least, affirmed that it had beheld but few widows there. In accordance with the fashion of the epoch, a Latin inscription on the wall indicated to the learned passer-by the pious purpose of this cell. The custom was retained until the middle of the sixteenth century of explaining an edifice by a brief device inscribed above the door. Thus, one still reads in France, above the wicket of the prison in the seigneurial mansion of Tourville, Sileto et Spira. In Ireland, beneath the armorial bearings which surmount the grand door to Fortescue Castle, Fortescutum Salus Ducum. In England, over the principal entrance to the hospitable mansion of the Earl's Cowper, Tuum Est. At that time every edifice was a thought. As there was no door to the walled cell of the Tour Roland, these two words had been carved in large Roman capitals over the window. Tu ora. And this caused the people, whose good sense does not perceive so much refinement in things, and likes to translate Ludovico Magno by Porte Saint-Denis, to give this dark, gloomy, damp cavity the name of the Rat-Hole. An explanation less sublime, perhaps, than the other, but on the other hand, more picturesque. End of Book Six, Chapter Two.
Book Six, Chapter Three of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Three History of Eleven Cake of Maize. At the epoch of this history, the cell in the Tor Roland was occupied. If the reader desires to know by whom, he has only to lend an ear to the conversation of three worthy gossips who, at the moment when we have directed his attention to the rat-hole, were directing their steps toward the same spot, coming up along the water's edge from the Châtelet towards the Greve. Two of these women were dressed like good bourgeoisie of Paris. Their fine white ruffs, their petticoats of linsey-woolsey, striped red and blue, their white knitted stockings, with clocks embroidered in colours, well drawn upon their legs the square-toed shoes of tawny leather with black soles. And above all, their headgear, that sort of tinsel horn loaded down with ribbons and laces, which the women of Champagne still wear, in company with the grenadiers of the Imperial Guard of Russia, announced that they belong to that class wives which holds the middle ground between what the lackeys call a woman and what they term a lady. They wore neither rings nor gold crosses, and it was easy to see that, in their ease, this did not proceed from poverty, but simply from fear of being fined. Their companion was attired in very much the same manner, but there was that indescribable something about her dress and bearing which suggested the wife of a provincial notary. One could see, by the way in which her girdle rose above her hips, that she had not been long in Paris. Add to this a plaited tucker, knots of ribbon on her shoes, and that the stripes of her petticoat ran horizontally instead of vertically, and a thousand other enormities which shocked good taste. The two first walked with that step peculiar to Parisian ladies showing Paris to women from the country. The provincial held by the hand a big boy, who held in his a large flat cake. We regret to be obliged to add that, owing to the rigour of the season, he was using his tongue as a handkerchief. The child was making them drag him along, non pessibus sequis, as Virgil says, and stumbling at every moment, to the great indignation of his mother. It is true that he was looking at his cake more than at the pavement. Some serious motive, no doubt, prevented his biting it, the cake for he contented himself with gazing tenderly at it. But the mother should have rather taken charge of the cake. It was cruel to make a tantalus of the chubby-cheeked boy. Meanwhile the three damoiselles, for the name of dames was then reserved for noble women, were all talking at once. "'Let us make haste, damoiselle Mahiette,' said the youngest of the three, who was also the largest, to the provincial. I greatly fear that we shall arrive too late. They told us at the Châtelet that they were going to take him directly to the pillory. Ah, bah! What are you saying, Demoiselle Oudard Mounier? interposed the other Parisienne. There are two hours yet to the pillory. We have time enough. Have you ever seen anyone pilloried, my dear Mahiette? Yes, said the provincial, at rhymes. Ah, bah! What is your pillory at rhymes? A miserable cage into which only peasants are turned. A great affair, truly!" "'Only peasants,' said Mahiette. 
at the cloth market in Rhymes. We have seen very fine criminals there, who have killed their father and mother. Peasants! For what do you take us, Gervaise? It is certain that the provincial was on the point of taking offence, for the honour of her pillory. Fortunately, that discreet demoiselle, Oudard Mounier, turned the conversation in time. By the way, demoiselle Mayette, what say you to our Flemish ambassadors? Have you as fine ones at Rhymes? I admit, replied Mayette, that it is only in Paris that such Flemings can be seen. Did you see among the embassy that big ambassador who is a hosier? asked Oudard. Yes, said Mayette. He has the eye of a Saturn. And the big fellow, whose face resembles a bare belly, resumed Gervaise, and the little one, with small eyes framed in red eyelids, pared down and slashed up like a thistle-head? "'Tis their horses that are worth seeing,' said Oudard, caparisoned as they are after the fashion of their country." "'Ah, my dear,' interrupted Provincial Mahiette, assuming in her turn an air of superiority. "'What would you say, then, if you had seen in sixty-one, at the consecration at Rhymes, eighteen years ago, the horses of the princes and of the king's company, housings and comparisons of all sorts, some of damask cloth, a fine cloth of gold, furred with sables, others of velvet, furred with ermine, others all embellished with goldsmith's work and large bells of gold and silver. And what money they had cost! and what handsome boy-pages rode upon them!" "'That,' replied Udar dryly, "'does not prevent the Flemings having very fine horses, and having had a superb supper yesterday with Monsieur the Provost of the Merchants at the Hôtel de Ville, where they were served with comfits and hippocras and spices and other singularities.' "'What are you saying, neighbor? exclaimed Gervaise. It was with Monsieur the Cardinal at the Petit Bourbon that they supped. Not at all, at the Hôtel de Ville. Yes, indeed, at the Petit Bourbon. It was at the Hôtel de Ville, retorted Oudard sharply. And Dr. Scrabble addressed them in a harangue in Latin, which pleased them greatly. My husband, who is a sworn bookseller, told me. It was at the Petit Bourbon, replied Gervaise, with no less spirit, and this is what Monsieur the Cardinal's procurator presented to them, twelve double quarts of hippocras, white, claret, and red, twenty-four boxes of double Lyon marchepane, gilded, as many torches, worth two livres apiece, and six demi-cues of bonnet wine, white and claret, the best that could be found. I have it from my husband who is a cinquantenier at the Parlois aux Bourgeois, and who was this morning comparing the Flemish ambassadors with those of Prester John and the Emperor of Trebizond, who came from Mesopotamia to Paris under the last king, and who wore rings in their ears. "'So true is it that they supped at the Hôtel de Ville,' replied Oudard, but little affected by this catalogue that such a triumph of viands and comfits has never been seen. I tell you that they were served by Lesseque, sergeant of the city, at the Hôtel du Petit Bourbon, and that that is where you are mistaken. 
At the Hôtel de Ville, I tell you. At the Petit Bourbon, my dear, and they had illuminated with magic glasses the word hope, which is written on the Grand Portal. At the Hôtel de Ville, at the Hôtel de Ville, and Ouzon Lavoie played the flute. I tell you no. I tell you yes. I say no. Plump and worthy Oudard was preparing to retort, and the quarrel might, perhaps, have proceeded to a pulling of caps, had not Mahiette suddenly exclaimed, "'Look at those people assembled yonder at the end of the bridge. There is something in their midst that they are looking at.' "'In sooth,' said Gervaise, "'I hear the sounds of a tambourine. I believe tis the little Esmeralda, who plays her mummeries with her goat.' Eh, be quick, Mayette, redouble your pace and drag along your boy. You are come hither to visit the curiosities of Paris. You saw the Flemings yesterday. You must see the gypsy today. The gypsy, said Mayette, suddenly retracing her steps and clasping her son's arm forcibly. God preserve me from it. She would steal my child from me. Come, Eustache and she set out on a run along the quay towards the greve, until she had left the bridge far behind her. In the meanwhile the child whom she was dragging after her fell upon his knees. She halted breathless. Oudard and Gervaise rejoined her. "'That gypsy steal your child from you,' said Gervaise. "'That's a singular freak of yours.' Mahiette shook her head with a pensive air. "'The singular point is,' observed Oudard, that La Sachette has the same idea about the Egyptian woman. "'What is La Sachette?' asked Mahiette. "'Eh,' said Oudard, "'Sister Gudule.' "'And who is Sister Gudule?' persisted Mahiette. "'You are certainly ignorant of all but your rhymes not to know that,' replied Oudard. "'Tis the recluse of the rat-hole.' "'What?' demanded Mahiette. That poor woman to whom we are carrying this cake?" Oudard nodded affirmatively. "'Precisely. You will see her presently at her window on the greve. She has the same opinion as yourself of these vagabonds of Egypt, who play the tambourine and tell fortunes to the public. No one knows whence comes her horror of the gypsies and Egyptians. But you, Mayette, why do you run so at the mere sight of them?' Oh, said Mahiette, seizing her child's round head in both hands, I don't want that to happen to me which happened to Paquette la Chantefleury. Oh, you must tell us that story, my good Mahiette, said Gervaise, taking her arm. Gladly, replied Mahiette, but you must be ignorant of all but your Paris not to know that. I will tell you then, but tis not necessary for us to halt that I may tell you the tale that Paquette la Chantefleury was a pretty maid of eighteen when I was one myself, that is to say, eighteen years ago, and tis her own fault if she is not to-day, like me, a good, plump, fresh mother of six-and-thirty, with a husband and a son. However, after the age of fourteen it is too late. Well, she was the daughter of Guy Bertant, minstrel of the barges at Rheims, the same who had played before King Charles the Seventh at his coronation, when he descended our river Veslay from Sillery to Moisson, when Madame the Maid of Orleans was also in the boat. 
The old father died when Paquette was still a mere child. She had then no one but her mother, the sister of Monsieur Pradon, Master Brazier and coppersmith in Paris, Rue Farm Garlin, who died last year. You see, she was of good family. The mother was a good, simple woman, unfortunately, and she taught Paquette nothing but a bit of embroidery and toy-making, which did not prevent the little one from growing very large and remaining very poor. They both dwelt at Rheims, on the river-front, Rue de Follet-Paine. Mark this, for I believe it was this which brought misfortune to Paquette. In sixty-one, the year of the coronation of our King Louis the Eleventh, whom God preserve, Paquette was so gay and so pretty that she was called everywhere by no other name than La Chante Fleury, Blossoming Song. Poor girl! She had handsome teeth, was fond of laughing and displaying them. Now a maid who loves to laugh is on the road to weeping. Handsome teeth ruin handsome eyes. So she was La Chante Fleury. She and her mother earned a precarious living. They had been very destitute since the death of the minstrel. Their embroidery did not bring them in more than six farthings a week, which does not amount to quite two eagoliards. Where were the days when Father Guy Bartant had earned twelve sous Parisian in a single coronation with a song? One winter, it was in the same year of sixty-one, when the two women had neither faggots nor firewood, it was very cold, which gave La Chante Fleury such a fine colour that the men called her Paquette and many called her Pacarette, and she was ruined. "'You stash, just let me see you bite that cake if you dare!' We immediately perceived that she was ruined one Sunday when she came to church with a gold cross about her neck, at fourteen years of age, do you see? First it was the young Vicomte de Cormontui, who has his bell-tower three leagues distant from Rheims. Then Monsieur Henri de Triencourt, equerry to the king. Then, less than that, Chiat de Bouillon, sergeant-at-arms. Then, still descending, Guerry Aubergeon, carver to the king. Then Massé de Frepeux, barber to Monsieur the Dauphin. Then Thévenin le king's cook. Then the men growing continually younger and less noble, she fell to Guillaume Racine, minstrel of the hurdy-gurdy, and to Thierry de Mer, lamplighter. Then, poor Chantfleury, she belonged to everyone. She had reached the last sou of her gold piece. What shall I say to you, my demoiselles? At the coronation in the same year, sixty-one, twas she who made the bed of the king of the debauches in the same year. Mahiette sighed and wiped away a tear which trickled from her eyes. This is no very extraordinary history, said Gervaise, and in the whole of it I see nothing of any Egyptian women or children. Patience, resumed Mahiette, you will see one child. In sixty-six, twill be sixteen years ago this month at St. Paul's Day, Paquette was brought to bed of a little girl. The unhappy creature! It was a great joy to her. She had long wished for a child. Her mother, good woman, who had never known what to do except to shut her eyes, her mother was dead. Paquette had no longer any one to love in the world, or any one to love her. 
La Chantefleury had been a poor creature during the five years since her fall. She was alone, alone in this life. Fingers were pointed at her. She was hooted at in the streets, beaten by the sergeants, jeered at by the little boys in rags. And then twenty had arrived, and twenty is an old age for amorous women. Folly began to bring her in no more than her trade of embroidery in former days. For every wrinkle that came a crown fled. Winter became hard to her once more, wood became rare again in her brazier and bread in her cupboard. She could no longer work, because in becoming voluptuous she had grown lazy, and she suffered much more, because in growing lazy she had become voluptuous. At least that is the way in which Monsieur the Curé of Saint-Rémy explains why these women are colder and hungrier than other poor women when they are old. "'Yes,' remarked Gervaise, "'but the gypsies?' "'One moment, Gervaise,' said Oudard, whose attention was less impatient. "'What would be left for the end if all were in the beginning? Continue, Mahiette, I entreat you. That poor Chantefleury—' Mahiette went on. So she was very sad, very miserable, and furrowed her cheeks with tears. But in the midst of her shame, her folly, her debauchery, it seemed to her that she should be less wild, less shameful, less dissipated, if there were something or someone in the world whom she could love, and who could love her. It was necessary that it should be a child because only a child could be sufficiently innocent for that. She had recognized this fact after having tried to love a thief, the only man who wanted her, but after a short time she perceived that the thief despised her. Those women of love require either a lover or a child to fill their hearts, otherwise they are very unhappy. As she could not have a lover, she turned wholly towards a desire for a child, and as she had not ceased to be pious, she made her constant prayer to the good God for it. So the good God took pity on her and gave her a little daughter. I will not speak to you of her joy. It was a fury of tears and caresses and kisses. She nursed her child herself, made swaddling bands for it out of her coverlet and only one which she had on her bed, and no longer felt either cold or hunger. She became beautiful once more, in consequence of it. An old maid makes a young mother. Gallantry claimed her once more. Men came to see La Chantefleury. She found customers again for her merchandise, and out of all these horrors she made baby clothes, caps and bibs, bodices with shoulder-straps of lace and tiny bonnets of satin, without even thinking of buying herself another coverlet. "'Master Eustache, I have already told you not to eat that cake!' It was certain that little Agnes—that was the child's name, a baptismal name, for it was a long time since La Chantefleury had had any surname—it is certain that that little one was more swathed in ribbons and embroideries than a dauphiness of Dauphiny. Among other things, she had a pair of little shoes, the like of which King Louis the Eleventh certainly never had. Her mother had stitched and embroidered them herself. 
she had lavished on them all the delicacies of her art of embroideress, and all the embellishments of a robe for the good virgin. They certainly were the two prettiest little pink shoes that could be seen. They were no longer than my thumb, and one had to see the child's little feet come out of them in order to believe that they had been able to get into them. Tis true that those little feet were so small, so pretty, so rosy, rosier than the satin of the shoes. When you have children, Udard, you will find that there is nothing prettier than those little hands and feet." "'I ask no better,' said Udard, with a sigh. "'But I am waiting until it shall suit the pleasure of Monsieur André Mounier.' However, Paquette's child had more that was pretty about it besides its feet. I saw her when she was only four months old. She was a love. She had eyes larger than her mouth, and the most charming black hair which already curled. She would have been a magnificent brunette at the age of sixteen. Her mother became more crazy over her every day. She kissed her, caressed her, tickled her, washed her, decked her out, devoured her. She lost her head over her, she thanked God for her. Her pretty little rosy feet above all were an endless source of wonderment. They were a delirium of joy. She was always pressing her lips to them, and she could never recover from her amazement at their smallness. She put them into the tiny shoes, took them out, admired them, marveled at them, looked at the light through them was curious to see them try to walk on her bed, and would gladly have passed her life on her knees, putting on and taking off the shoes from those feet, as though they had been those of an infant Jesus. "'The tale is fair and good,' said Gervaise in a low tone. "'But where do gypsies come into all that?' "'Here,' replied Mahiette. One day there arrived in Rhymes a very queer sort of people. They were beggars and vagabonds who were roaming over the country, led by their duke and their counts. They were browned by exposure to the sun, they had closely curling hair and silver rings in their ears. The women were still uglier than the men. They had blacker faces, which were always uncovered, a miserable frock on their bodies an old cloth woven of cords bound upon their shoulder, and their hair hanging like the tail of a horse. The children who scrambled between their legs would have frightened as many monkeys. A band of excommunicates. All these persons came direct from Lower Egypt to Rhymes through Poland. The Pope had confessed them, it was said, and had prescribed to them as penance to roam through the world for seven years without sleeping in a bed and so they were called penancers, and smelt horribly. It appears that they had formerly been Saracens, which was why they believed in Jupiter, and claimed ten livres of tournay from all archbishops, bishops, and mitred abbots with croziers. A bull from the Pope empowered them to do that. They came to Rhymes to tell fortunes in the name of the King of Algiers and the Emperor of Germany. You can readily imagine that no more was needed to cause the entrance to the town to be forbidden to them. Then the whole band camped with good grace outside the gate of Brain, on that hill where stands a mill beside the cavities of the ancient chalk-pits. And everybody in Rhymes vied with his neighbor in going to see them. 
They looked at your hand and told you marvelous prophecies. They were equal to predicting to Judas that he would become Pope. Nevertheless, ugly rumors were in circulation in regard to them, about children stolen, purses cut, and human flesh devoured. The wise people said to the foolish, Don't go there, and then went themselves on the sly. It was an infatuation. The fact is that they said things fit to astonish a cardinal. Mothers triumphed greatly over their little ones after the Egyptians had read in their hands all sorts of marvels written in pagan and in Turkish. One had an emperor, another a pope, another a captain. Poor Chantefleury was seized with curiosity. She wished to know about herself and whether her pretty little Agnes would not become some day empress of Armenia or something else. So she carried her to the Egyptians and the Egyptian women fell to admiring the child, and to caressing it, and to kissing it with their black mouths, and to marveling over its little band, alas, to the great joy of the mother. They were especially enthusiastic over her pretty feet and shoes. The child was not yet a year old. She already lisped a little, laughed at her mother like a little mad thing, was plump and quite round, and possessed a thousand charming little gestures of the angels of paradise. She was very much frightened by the Egyptians and wept. But her mother kissed her more warmly and went away enchanted with the good fortune which the soothsayers had foretold for her Agnes. She was to be a beauty, virtuous, a queen. So she returned to her attic in the Rue Falponet, very proud of bearing with her a queen. The next day she took advantage of a moment when the child was asleep on her bed, for they always slept together, gently left the door a little way open, and ran to tell a neighbor in the Rue de la Sacherie that the day would come when her daughter Agnes would be served at a table by the King of England and by the Archduke of Ethiopia, and a hundred other marvels. On her return, hearing no cries on the staircase, she said to herself, Good, the child is still asleep. She found her door wider open than she had left it, but she entered, poor mother, and ran to the bed. The child was no longer there. The place was empty. Nothing remained of the child but one of her pretty little shoes. She flew out of the room, dashed down the stairs, and began to beat her head against the wall, crying, my child! Who has my child? Who has taken my child?" The street was deserted, the house isolated. No one could tell her anything about it. She went about the town, searched all the streets, ran hither and thither the whole day long, wild, beside herself, terrible, snuffing at doors and windows like a wild beast which has lost its young. She was breathless, disheveled, frightful to see, and there was a fire in her eyes which dried her tears. She stopped the passers-by and cried, My daughter, my daughter, my pretty little daughter! If anyone will give me back my daughter, I will be his servant, the servant of his dog. He shall eat my heart if he will. She met Monsieur le Curé of Saint-Rémy and said to him, Monsieur, I will till the earth with my fingernails, but give me back my child." It was heart-rending, Udard, and I saw a very hard man, Master Ponce Lacabre, the procurator, weep. 
Ah, poor mother! In the evening she returned home. During her absence a neighbor had seen two gypsies ascend up to it with a bundle in their arms, then descend again, after closing the door. After their departure something like the cries of a child were heard in Paquette's room. The mother burst into shrieks of laughter, ascended the stairs as though on wings, and entered. A frightful thing to tell, Udard. Instead of her pretty little Agnes, so rosy and so fresh, who was a gift of the good God, a sort of hideous little monster, lame, one-eyed, deformed, was crawling and squalling over the floor. She hid her eyes in horror. Oh, said she, have the witches transformed my daughter into this horrible animal? They hastened to carry away the little clubfoot. He would have driven her mad. It was the monstrous child of some gypsy woman who had given herself to the devil. He appeared to be about four years old, and talked a language which was no human tongue. There were words in it which were impossible. La Chantefleurie flung herself upon the little shoe, all that remained to her of all that she loved. She remained so long motionless over it, mute and without breath, that they thought she was dead. Suddenly she trembled all over, covered her relic with furious kisses, and burst out sobbing as though her heart were broken. I assure you that we were all weeping also. She said, Oh, my little daughter, my pretty little daughter, where art thou? And it wrung your very heart. I weep still when I think of it. Our children are the marrow of our bones, you see. My poor Eustache, thou art so fair. If you only knew how nice he is. Yesterday he said to me, I want to be a gendarme, that I do. Oh, my Eustache, if I were to lose thee!" All at once La Chantefleurie rose, and set out to run through rhyme, screaming, To the gypsies' camp! To the gypsies' camp! Police! To burn the witches! The gypsies were gone. It was pitch dark. They could not be followed. On the morrow, two leagues from Rheims, on a heath between Guillaume and Tilly, the remains of a large fire were found, some ribbons which had belonged to Paquette's child, drops of blood, and the dung of a ram. The night just passed had been a Saturday. There was no longer any doubt that the Egyptians had held their Sabbath on that heath, and that they had devoured the child in company with Beelzebub, as the practice is among the Mahometans. When La Chantefleurie learned these horrible things, she did not weep. She moved her lips as though to speak, but could not. On the morrow her hair was gray. On the second day she had disappeared. "'Tis in truth a frightful tale," said Udard, and one which would make even a Burgundian weep. I am no longer surprised," added Gervaise, that fear of the gypsies should spur you on so sharply. And you did all the better, resumed Udard, to flee with your eustache just now, since these also are gypsies from Poland. No, said Gervaise, tis said that they come from Spain and Catalonia. Catalonia? Tis possible, replied Udard. Pologne, Catalonia, Valone, I always confound those three provinces. 
One thing is certain, that they are gypsies. Who certainly, added Gervaise, have teeth long enough to eat little children. I should not be surprised if La Smerelda ate a little of them also, though she pretends to be dainty. Her white goat knows tricks that are too malicious for there not to be some impiety underneath it all." Mayette walked on in silence. She was absorbed in that reverie which is, in some sort, the continuation of a mournful tale, and which ends only after having communicated the emotion, from vibration to vibration, even to the very last fibres of the heart. Nevertheless, Gervaise addressed her. And did they ever learn what became of La Chantefleurie? Mayette made no reply. Gervaise repeated her question, and shook her arm, calling her by name. Mayette appeared to awaken from her thoughts. "'What became of La Chantefleurie?' she asked, repeating mechanically the words whose impression was still fresh in her ear, then making an effort to recall her attention to the meaning of her words. "'Ah!' she continued briskly. No one ever found out." She added, after a pause, "'Some said that she had been seen to quit rhymes at nightfall by the Flechambeau gate, others at daybreak by the old Basset gate. A poor man found her gold cross hanging at the stone cross in the field where the fair is held. It was that ornament which had wrought her ruin in sixty-one. It was a gift from the handsome Vicomte de Cormontuis, her first lover. Paquette had never been willing to part with it, wretched as she had been. She had clung to it as to life itself. So when we saw that cross abandoned, we all thought that she was dead. Nevertheless, there were people of the Cabaret Levante who said that they had seen her pass along the road to Paris, walking on the pebbles with her bare feet. But in that case, she must have gone out through the Porte la Vallée, and all this does not agree. Or, to speak more truly, I believe that she actually did depart by the Porte de Vallée, but departed from this world." "'I do not understand you,' said Gervaise. "'La Vale, replied Mayette, with a melancholy smile, "'is the river.' "'Poor Chantefleurie,' said Oudard, with a shiver. Drowned! Drowned! resumed Mahiette. Who could have told good father Guibertant when he passed under the bridge of Tignot with the current, singing in his barge, that one day his dear little Paquette would also pass beneath that bridge, but without song or boat? And the little shoe? asked Gervaise. Disappeared with the mother, replied Mahiette. Poor little shoe, said Oudard. Oudard, a big and tender woman, would have been well pleased to sigh in company with Mayette. But Gervaise, more curious, had not finished her questions. And the monster? she said suddenly to Mayette. What monster? inquired the latter. The little gypsy monster left by the sorceresses in Chantefleurie's chamber, in exchange for her daughter. What did you do with it? I hope you drowned it also." "'No,' replied Mayette. "'What? You burned it, then? In sooth, that is more just. A witch-child!' "'Neither the one nor the other, Gervaise. 
Monseigneur the Archbishop interested himself in the child of Egypt, exercised it, blessed it, removed the devil carefully from its body, and sent it to Paris, to be exposed on the wooden bed at Notre-Dame as a foundling. Those bishops, grumbled Gervaise, because they are learned they do nothing like anybody else. I just put it to you, Udard, the idea of placing the devil among the foundlings. For that little monster was assuredly the devil. Well, Mayette, what did they do with it in Paris? I am quite sure that no charitable person wanted it." "'I do not know,' replied the Remois. "'Twas just at that time that my husband bought the office of notary at Bern, two leagues from the town, and we were no longer occupied with that story. Besides, in front of Bern stand the two hills of Cernay, which hide the towers of the cathedral in Rheims from view." While chatting thus, the three worthy bourgeoisie had arrived at the Place de Greve. In their absorption they had passed the public breviary of the Tour Roland without stopping, and took their way mechanically towards the pillory around which the throng was growing more dense with every moment. It was probable that the spectacle which at that moment attracted all looks in that direction would have made them forget completely the rat-hole, and the halt which they intended to make there if big Eustache, six years of age, whom Mayette was dragging along by the hand, had not abruptly recalled the object to them. "'Mother,' he said, as though some instinct warned him that the rat-hole was behind them, "'can I eat the cake now?' If Eustache had been more adroit, that is to say, less greedy, he would have continued to wait, and would only have hazarded that simple question, Mother, can I eat the cake now? on their return to the university, to Master André Mounier's, Rue Madame la Valence, when he had the two arms of the Seine and the five bridges of the city between the rat-hole and the cake. This question, highly imprudent at the moment when Eustache put it, aroused Mayette's attention. "'By the way,' she exclaimed, "'we are forgetting the recluse. Show me the rat-hole that I may carry her her cake.' "'Immediately,' said Udard, "'tis a charity.' But this did not suit Eustache. "'Stop! My cake!' said he, rubbing both ears alternatively with his shoulders, which, in such cases, is the supreme sign of discontent. The three women retraced their steps, and, on arriving in the vicinity of the Tour Roland, Oudard said to the other two, "'We must not all three gaze into the hole at once, for fear of alarming the recluse. Do you two pretend to read the Dominus in the breviary, while I thrust my nose into the aperture? The recluse knows me a little. I will give you warning when you can approach.' She proceeded alone to the window. At the moment when she looked in, a profound pity was depicted on all her features, and her frank, gay visage altered its expression and color as abruptly as though it had passed from a ray of sunlight to a ray of moonlight. Her eye became humid, her mouth contracted, like that of a person on the point of weeping. A moment later she laid her finger on her lips and made a sign to Mahiette to draw near and look. Mahiette, much touched, stepped up in silence on tiptoe, as though approaching the bedside of a dying person. 
It was, in fact, a melancholy spectacle which presented itself to the eyes of the two women as they gazed through the grating of the rat-hole, neither stirring nor breathing. The cell was small, broader than it was long, with an arched ceiling, and viewed from within, it bore a considerable resemblance to the interior of a huge bishop's mitre. On the bare flagstones which formed the floor, in one corner a woman was sitting, or rather crouching. Her chin rested on her knees, which her crossed arms pressed forcibly to her breast. Thus doubled up, clad in a brown sack, which enveloped her entirely in large folds, her long gray hair pulled over in front, falling over her face and along her legs nearly to her feet, she presented, at the first glance, only a strange form outlined against the dark background of the cell, a sort of dusky triangle, which the ray of daylight falling through the opening cut roughly into two shades, the one somber, the other illuminated. It was one of those spectres, half light, half shadow, such as one beholds in dreams and in the extraordinary work of Goya, pale, motionless, sinister, crouching over a tomb or leaning against the grating of a prison cell. It was neither a woman nor a man, nor a living being, nor a definite form. It was a figure, a sort of vision in which the real and the fantastic intersected each other, like darkness and day. It was with difficulty that one distinguished, beneath her hair which spread to the ground, a gaunt and severe profile. Her dress barely allowed the extremity of a bare foot to escape, which contracted on the hard, cold pavement. The little of human form of which one caught a sight beneath this envelope of mourning caused a shudder. That figure, which one might have supposed to be riveted to the flagstones, appeared to possess neither movement nor thought nor breath. Lying in January in that thin linen sack, lying on a granite floor without fire, in the gloom of a cell whose oblique air-hole allowed only the cold breeze but never the sun to enter from without, she did not appear to suffer or even to think. One would have said that she had turned to stone with the cell, ice with the season. Her hands were clasped, her eyes fixed. At first sight one took her for a spectre, at the second for a statue. Nevertheless at intervals her blue lips half opened to admit a breath, and trembled, but as dead and as mechanical as the leaves which the wind sweeps aside. Nevertheless, from her dull eyes there escaped a look, an ineffable look, a profound, lugubrious, imperturbable look, incessantly fixed upon a corner of the cell which could not be seen from without, a gaze which seemed to fix all the somber thoughts of that soul in distress upon some mysterious object. Such was the creature who had received, from her habitation, the name of the recluse, and from her garment the name of the sacked nun. The three women, for Gervaise had rejoined Mahiette and Oudard, gazed through the window. Their heads intercepted the feeble light in the cell, without the wretched being whom they thus deprived of it seeming to pay any attention to them. "'Do not let us trouble her,' said Oudard in a low voice. 
She is in her ecstasy. She is praying. Meanwhile, Mayette was gazing with ever-increasing anxiety at that wan, withered, disheveled head, and her eyes filled with tears. "'This is very singular,' she murmured. She thrust her head through the bars, and succeeded in casting a glance at the corner where the gaze of the unhappy woman was immovably riveted. When she withdrew her head from the window, her countenance was inundated with tears. "'What do you call that woman?' she asked Udard. Udard replied, "'We call her Sister Goudoulet.' "'And I,' returned Mahiette, "'call her Paquette la Chantefleurie.' Then, laying her finger on her lips, she motioned to the astounded Udard to thrust her head through the window and look. Udard looked and beheld, in the corner where the eyes of the recluse were fixed in that sombre ecstasy, a tiny shoe of pink satin, embroidered with a thousand fanciful designs in gold and silver. Gervaise looked after Udard, and then the three women, gazing upon the unhappy mother, began to weep. But neither their looks nor their tears disturbed the recluse. Her hands remained clasped, her lips mute, her eyes fixed, and that little shoe, thus gazed at, broke the heart of anyone who knew her history. The three women had not yet uttered a single word. They dared not speak, even in a low voice. This deep silence, this deep grief, this profound oblivion, in which everything had disappeared except one thing, produced upon them the effect of the grand altar at Christmas or Easter. They remained silent, they meditated, they were ready to kneel. It seemed to them that they were ready to enter a church on the day of Tenebrae. At length Gervaise, the most curious of the three, and consequently the least sensitive, tried to make the recluse speak. Sister. Sister Goudelet? She repeated this call three times, raising her voice each time. The recluse did not move. Not a word, not a glance, not a sigh, not a sign of life. Udard, in her turn, in a sweeter, more caressing voice, Sister, said she, Sister Saint Goudelet? The same silence, the same immobility. A singular woman, exclaimed Gervaise, and one not to be moved by a catapult. Perchance she is deaf, said Udard. Perhaps she is blind, added Gervaise. Dead, perchance, returned Mayette. It is certain that if the soul had not already quitted this inert, sluggish, lethargic body, it had at least retreated and concealed itself in depths whither the perceptions of the exterior organs no longer penetrated. "'Then we must leave the cake on the window,' said Udard. "'Some scamp will take it. What shall we do to rouse her?' Eustache, who up to that moment had been diverted by a little carriage drawn by a large dog which had just passed, suddenly perceived that his three conductresses were gazing at something through the window and curiosity taking possession of him in his turn, he climbed upon a stone post, elevated himself on tiptoe, and applied his fat, red face to the opening, shouting, "'Mother, let me see it too!' 
At the sound of this clear, fresh, ringing child's voice, the recluse trembled. She turned her head with the sharp, abrupt movement of a steel spring. Her long, fleshless hands cast aside the hair from her brow, and she fixed upon the child bitter, astonished, desperate eyes. This glance was but a lightning flash. "'Oh, my God!' she suddenly exclaimed, hiding her head on her knees, and it seemed as though her hoarse voice tore her chest as it passed from it. "'Do not show me those of others!' "'Good day, madam,' said the child gravely. Nevertheless, this shock had, so to speak, awakened the recluse. A long shiver traversed her frame from head to foot. Her teeth chattered. She half raised her head and said, pressing her elbows against her hips and clasping her feet in her hands as though to warm them, "'Oh, how cold it is!' "'Poor woman,' said Udard, with great compassion. "'Would you like a little fire?' She shook her head in a token of refusal. "'Well,' resumed Udard, presenting her with a flagon, "'here is some hippocras which will warm you. Drink it.' Again she shook her head, looked at Udard fixedly, and replied, "'Water!' Udard persisted. "'No, sister, that is no beverage for January. You must drink a little hippocras and eat this leavened cake of maize which we have baked for you.' She refused the cake which Mahiet offered to her, and said, "'Black bread!' "'Come,' said Gervaise seized in her turn with an impulse of charity, and unfastening her woolen cloak, here is a cloak which is a little warmer than yours. She refused the cloak as she had refused the flagon and the cake, and replied, A sack! But, resumed the good Udard, you must have perceived to some extent that yesterday was a festival. I do perceive it, said the recluse. "'Tis two days now since I have had any water in my crock.' She added, after a silence, "'Tis a festival. I am forgotten. People do well. Why should the world think of me when I do not think of it? Cold charcoal makes cold ashes.' And, as though fatigued with having said so much, she dropped her head on her knees again. The simple and charitable Udard, who fancied that she understood from her last words that she was complaining of the cold, replied innocently, "'Then you would like a little fire?' "'Fire!' said the sacked nun, with a strange accent. "'And will you also make a little for the poor little one who has been beneath the sod for these fifteen years?' Every limb was trembling. Her voice quivered, her eyes flashed, she had raised herself upon her knees. Suddenly she extended her thin white hand towards the child, who was regarding her with a look of astonishment. "'Take away that child!' she cried. "'The Egyptian woman is about to pass by!' Then she fell face downward on the earth, and her forehead struck the stone with the sound of one stone against another stone. The three women thought her dead. A moment later, however, she moved, and they beheld her drag herself, on her knees and elbows, to the corner where the little shoe was. Then they dared not look. 
they no longer saw her, but they heard a thousand kisses and a thousand sighs, mingled with heart-rending cries, and dull blows like those of a head in contact with a wall. Then, after one of these blows, so violent that all three of them staggered, they heard no more. "'Can she have killed herself?' said Gervaise, venturing to pass her head through the air-hole. "'Sister! Sister Goudelet! Sister Goudelet!' repeated Udard. "'Ah! Oh, good heavens! She no longer moves!' resumed Gervaise. "'Is she dead? Goudelet! Goudelet!' Mahiette, choked to such a point that she could not speak, made an effort. "'Wait!' said she. Then, bending towards the window, "'Paquette!' she said. "'Paquette la Chantefleurie!' A child, who innocently blows upon the badly ignited fuse of a bomb, and makes it explode in his face, is no more terrified than was Mayette at the effect of that name, abruptly launched into the cell of Sister Goudelet. The recluse trembled all over, rose erect on her bare feet, and leaped at the window with eyes so glaring that Mayette and Udard and the other woman and the child recoiled even to the parapet of the quay. Meanwhile the sinister face of the recluse appeared pressed to the grating of the air-hole. "'Oh! oh!' she cried, with an appalling laugh. "'Tis the Egyptian who is calling me!' At that moment a scene which was passing at the pillory caught her wild eye. Her brow contracted with horror. She stretched her two skeleton arms from her cell, and shrieked in a voice which resembled a death-rattle, "'So tis thou once more, daughter of Egypt! Tis thou who callest me, stealer of children! Well, be thou accursed, 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 accursed!' End of Book Six, Chapter Three Book Six, Chapter Four of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Four A Tear for a Drop of Water. These words were, so to speak, the point of union of two scenes, which had, up to that time, been developed in parallel lines at the same moment, each on its particular theatre. One, that which the reader has just perused, in the rat-hole, the other, which he is about to read, on the ladder of the pillory. The first had for witnesses only the three women with whom the reader has just made acquaintance. The second had for spectators all the public which we have seen above, collecting on the Place de Greve, around the pillory and the gibbet. That crowd, which the four sergeants posted at nine o'clock in the morning at the four corners of the pillory, had inspired with the hope of some sort of an execution, no doubt, not a hanging, but a whipping, a cropping of ears, something, in short, that crowd had increased so rapidly that the four policemen, too closely besieged, had had occasion to press it, as the expression then ran, more than once by sound blows of their whips and the haunches of their horses. This populace, disciplined to waiting for public executions, did not manifest very much impatience. 
it amused itself with watching the pillory, a very simple sort of monument, composed of a cube of masonry about six feet high and hollow in the interior. A very steep staircase of unhewn stone, which was called by distinction the ladder, led to the upper platform, upon which was visible a horizontal wheel of solid oak. The victim was bound upon this wheel, on his knees, with his hands behind his back. A wooden shaft, which set in motion a capstan concealed in the interior of the little edifice, imparted a rotatory motion to the wheel, which always maintained its horizontal position, and in this manner presented the face of the condemned man to all quarters of the square in succession. This was what was called turning a criminal. As the reader perceives, the pillory of the greve was far from presenting all the recreations of the pillory of the hall. Nothing architectural, nothing monumental. No roof to the iron cross, no octagonal lantern, no frail, slender columns spreading out on the edge of the roof into capitals of acanthus leaves and flowers. No water-spouts of chimeras and monsters on carved woodwork, no fine sculpture deeply sunk in the stone. They were forced to content themselves with those four stretches of rubble-work, backed with sandstone and a wretched stone gibbet, meagre and bare, on one side. The entertainment would have been but a poor one for lovers of Gothic architecture. It is true that nothing was ever less curious on the score of architecture than the worthy gapers of the Middle Ages, and that they cared very little for the beauty of a pillory. The victim finally arrived, bound to the tail of a cart, and when he had been hoisted upon the platform, where he could be seen from all points of the place, bound with cords and straps upon the wheel of the pillory, a prodigious hoot mingled with laughter and acclamations burst forth upon the place. They had recognized Quasimodo. It was he, in fact. The change was singular pilloried on the very place where, on the day before, he had been saluted, acclaimed, and proclaimed Pope and Prince of Fools, in the cortege of the Duke of Egypt, the King of Tunay, and the Emperor of Galilee. One thing is certain, and that is, there was not a soul in the crowd, not even himself, though in turn triumphant, and the sufferer, who set forth this combination clearly in his thought. Gringoire and his philosophy were missing at this spectacle. Soon Michel Noiret, sworn trumpeter to the King our Lord, imposed silence on the louts, and proclaimed the sentence, in accordance with the order and command of Monsieur the Provost. Then he withdrew behind the cart, with his men in livery surcoats. Quasimodo, impassable, did not wince. All resistance had been rendered impossible to him by what was then called, in the style of the criminal chancellery, the vehemence and firmness of the bonds, which means that the thongs and chains probably cut into his flesh. Moreover, it is a tradition of jail and wardens, which has not been lost, and which the handcuffs still preciously preserve among us, a civilized, gentle, humane people the galleys and the guillotine in parentheses. He had allowed himself to be led, pushed, carried, lifted, bound, and bound again. 
nothing was to be seen upon his countenance but the astonishment of a savage or an idiot. He was known to be deaf. One might have pronounced him to be blind. They placed him on his knees on the circular plank. He made no resistance. They removed his shirt and doublet as far as his girdle. He allowed them to have their way. They entangled him under a fresh system of thongs and buckles. He allowed them to bind and buckle him. Only from time to time he snorted noisily, like a calf whose head is hanging and bumping over the edge of a butcher's cart. "'The dolt!' said Jehan Frollo of the mill, to his friend Robin Pouspin, for the two students had followed the culprit, as was to have been expected. He understands no more than a cockchafer shut up in a box. There was a wild laughter among the crowd when they beheld Quasimodo's hump, his camel's breast, his callous and hairy shoulders laid bare. During this gaiety, a man in the livery of the city, short of stature and robust of mien, mounted the platform and placed himself near the victim. His name speedily circulated among the spectators. It was Master Periat Tortureau, official torturer to the Châtelet. He began by depositing on an angle of the pillory a black hourglass, the upper lobe of which was filled with red sand, which it allowed to glide into the lower receptacle. Then he removed his party-colored surtout, and there became visible, suspended from his right hand, a thin and tapering whip of long, white, shining, knotted, plated thongs, armed with metal nails. With his left hand he negligently folded back his shirt around his right arm to the very armpit. In the meantime, Jehan Frollo, elevating his curly blond head above the crowd, he had mounted upon the shoulders of Robin Pouspin for the purpose, shouted, Come and look, gentle ladies and men, they are going to peremptorily flagellate Master Quasimodo, the bell-ringer of my brother, Monsieur the Archdeacon of José, a knave of Oriental architecture, who has a back like a dome and legs like twisted columns. And the crowd burst into a laugh, especially the boys and young girls. At length the torturer stamped his foot. The wheel began to turn. Quasimodo wavered beneath his bonds. The amazement which was suddenly depicted upon his deformed face caused the bursts of laughter to redouble around him. All at once, at the moment when the wheel in its revolution presented to Master Perret the humped back of Quasimodo, Master Perret raised his arm. The fine thongs whistled sharply through the air, like a handful of adders, and fell with fury upon the wretch's shoulders. Quasimodo leaped as though awakened with a start. He began to understand. He writhed in his bonds. A violent contraction of surprise and pain distorted the muscles of his face, but he uttered not a single sigh. He merely turned his head backward to the right, then to the left, balancing it as a bull does who has been stung in the flanks by a gadfly. A second blow followed the first, then a third, and another, and another, and still others. The wheel did not cease to turn, nor the blows to rain down. Soon the blood burst forth, 
and could be seen trickling in a thousand threads down the hunchback's black shoulders. And the slender thongs, in their rotatory motion which rent the air, sprinkled drops of it upon the crowd. Quasimodo had resumed, to all appearance, his first imperturbability. He had first tried, in a quiet way and without much outward movement, to break his bonds. His eye had been seen to light up, his muscles to stiffen, his members to concentrate their force and the straps to stretch. The effort was powerful, prodigious, desperate. But the provost's seasoned bonds resisted. They cracked, and that was all. Quasimodo fell back exhausted. Amazement gave way on his features to a sentiment of profound and bitter discouragement. He closed his single eye, allowed his head to droop upon his breast, and feigned death. From that moment forth he stirred no more. Nothing could force a movement from him, neither his blood, which did not cease to flow, nor the blows which redoubled in fury, nor the wrath of the torturer who grew excited himself and intoxicated with the execution, nor the sound of the horrible thongs, more sharp and whistling than the claws of scorpions. At length a bailiff from the Châtelet clad in black, mounted on a black horse, who had been stationed beside the latter since the beginning of the execution, extended his ebony wand towards the hourglass. The torturer stopped. The wheel stopped. Quasimodo's eye opened slowly. The scourging was finished. Two lackeys of the official torturer bathed the bleeding shoulders of the patient, anointed them with some unguent which immediately closed all the wounds, and threw upon his back a sort of yellow vestment, in cut like a chasuble. In the meanwhile Perret Tortureau allowed the thongs, red and gorged with blood, to drip upon the pavement. All was not over for Quasimodo. He had still to undergo that hour of pillory which Master Florian Barbedienne had so judiciously added to the sentence of Messire Robert d'Estauville, all to the greater glory of the old physiological and psychological play upon the words of Jean de Cumenet, Surdus absurdus. A deaf man is absurd. So the hourglass was turned over once more, and they left the hunchback fastened to the plank, in order that justice might be accomplished to the very end. The populace, especially in the Middle Ages, is in society what the child is in the family. As long as it remains in its state of primitive ignorance, of moral and intellectual minority, it can be said of it as of the child. Tis the pitiless age. We have already shown that Quasimodo was generally hated, for more than one good reason it is true. There was hardly a spectator in that crowd who had not, or did not believe, that he had reason to complain of the malevolent hunchback of Notre Dame. The joy at seeing him appear thus in the pillory had been universal, and the harsh punishment which he had just suffered, and the pitiful condition in which it had left him, far from softening the populace, had rendered its hatred more malicious, by arming it with a touch of mirth. Hence the public prosecution satisfied, as the bigwigs of the law still express it in their jargon, the turn came of a thousand private vengeances. 
Here, as in the Grand Hall, the women rendered themselves particularly prominent. All cherished some rancor against him, some for his malice, others for his ugliness. The latter were the most furious. "'Oh, mask of Antichrist!' said one. "'Rider on a broom-handle!' cried another. "'What a fine tragic grimace!' howled a third. "'And who would make him Pope of the Fools if to-day were yesterday?' "'Tis well,' struck in an old woman. "'This is the grimace of the pillory. When shall we have that of the gibbet?' "'When will you be quaffed with your big bell a hundred feet underground, cursed bell-ringer?' "'But tis the devil who rings the angelus!' "'Oh, the deaf man, the one-eyed creature, the hunchback, the monster! A face to make a woman miscarry better than all the drugs and medicines!' And the two scholars, Jehan du Malan and Robin Pouspin, sang at the top of their lungs the ancient refrain, Une art pour la pendade, on fagot pour la maggot. A rope for the gallows bird, a faggot for the ape. A thousand other insults rained down upon him, and hoots and imprecations and laughter, and now and then stones. Quasimodo was deaf, but his sight was clear and the public fury was no less energetically depicted on their visages than in their words. Moreover, the blows from the stones explained the bursts of laughter. At first he held his ground, but little by little that patience which had borne up under the lash of the torturer yielded and gave way before all these stings of insects. The bull of the Asturias, who has been but little moved by the attacks of the Picador, grows irritated with the dogs and Banderillas. He first cast around a slow glance of hatred upon the crowd. But, bound as he was, his glance was powerless to drive away those flies which were stinging his wound. Then he moved in his bonds, and his furious exertions made the ancient wheel of the pillory shriek on its axle. All this only increased the derision and hooting. Then the wretched man, unable to break his collar, like that of a chained wild beast, became tranquil once more. Only at intervals a sigh of rage heaved the hollows of his chest. There was neither shame nor redness on his face. He was too far from the state of society, and too near the state of nature to know what shame was. Moreover, with such a degree of deformity, is infamy a thing that can be felt? But wrath, hatred, despair, slowly lowered over that hideous visage, a cloud which grew ever more and more somber, ever more and more charged with electricity, which burst forth in a thousand lightning flashes from the eye of the Cyclops. Nevertheless, that cloud cleared away for a moment, at the passage of a mule which traversed the crowd, bearing a priest. As far away as he could see that mule and that priest, the poor victim's visage grew gentler. The fury which had contracted it was followed by a strange smile full of ineffable sweetness, gentleness, and tenderness. In proportion as the priest approached, that smile became more clear, more distinct, more radiant. It was like the arrival of a saviour 
which the unhappy man was greeting. But as soon as the mule was near enough to the pillory to allow of its rider recognizing the victim, the priest dropped his eyes, beat a hasty retreat, spurred on rigorously, as though in haste to rid himself of humiliating appeals, and not at all desirous of being saluted and recognized by a poor fellow in such a predicament. The priest was Archdeacon Dom Claude Frollo. The cloud descended more blackly than ever upon Quasimodo's brow. The smile was still mingled with it for a time, but was bitter, discouraged, profoundly sad. Time passed on. He had been there at least an hour and a half, lacerated, maltreated, mocked incessantly, and almost stoned. All at once he moved again in his chains with redoubled despair, which made the whole framework that bore him tremble, and, breaking the silence which he had obstinately preserved hitherto, he cried in a hoarse and furious voice, which resembled a bark rather than a human cry, and which was drowned in the noise of the hoots, Drink! This exclamation of distress, far from exciting compassion, only added amusement to the good Parisian populace who surrounded the latter, and who, it must be confessed, taken in the mass and as a multitude, was then no less cruel and brutal than that horrible tribe of robbers among whom we have already conducted the reader, and which was simply the lower stratum of the populace. Not a voice was raised around the unhappy victim, except to jeer at his thirst. It is certain that at that moment he was more grotesque and repulsive than pitiable, with his face purple and dripping, his eye wild, his mouth foaming with rage and pain, and his tongue lolling half out. It must also be stated that if a charitable soul of bourgeois or bourgeoisie in the rabble had attempted to carry a glass of water to that wretched creature in torment, there reigned around the infamous steps of the pillory such a prejudice of shame and ignominy that it would have sufficed to repulse the good Samaritan. At the expiration of a few moments Quasimodo cast a desperate glance upon the crowd, and repeated in a voice still more heart-rending, Drink! And all began to laugh. Drink this! cried Robin Pouspin, throwing in his face a sponge which had been soaked in the gutter. There, you deaf villain! I'm your debtor! A woman hurled a stone at his head. That will teach you to wake us up at night with your peal of a damned soul! Eh, good my son! howled a cripple, making an effort to reach him with his crutch. Will you cast any more spells on us from the top of the towers of Notre Dame? Here's a drinking cup, chimed in a man, flinging a broken jug at his breast. Twas you that made my wife, simply because she passed near you, give birth to a child with two heads. And my cat bring forth a kitten with six paws, yelped an old crone, launching a brick at him. Drink! repeated Quasimodo, panting for the third time. At that moment he beheld the crowd give way. A young girl, fantastically dressed, emerged from the throng. 
She was accompanied by a little white goat with gilded horns, and carried a tambourine in her hand. Quasimodo's eyes sparkled. It was the gypsy whom he had attempted to carry off on the preceding night, a misdeed for which he was dimly conscious that he was being punished at that very moment, which was not in the least the case, since he was being chastised only for the misfortune of being deaf, and of having been judged by a deaf man. He doubted not that she had come to wreak her vengeance also, and to deal her blow like the rest. He beheld her, in fact, mount the ladder rapidly. Wrath and spite suffocated him. He would have liked to make the pillory crumble into ruins, and if the lightning of his eye could have dealt death, the gypsy would have been reduced to powder before she reached the platform. She approached, without uttering a syllable, the victim who writhed in a vain effort to escape her, and detaching a gourd from her girdle, she raised it gently to the parched lips of the miserable man. Then, from that eye which had been up to that moment so dry and burning, a big tear was seen to fall, and roll slowly down that deformed visage, so long contracted with despair. It was the first, in all probability, that the unfortunate man had ever shed. Meanwhile he had forgotten to drink. The gypsy made her little pout from impatience, and pressed the spout to the tusked mouth of Quasimodo with a smile. He drank with deep draughts. His thirst was burning. When he had finished, the wretch protruded his black lips, no doubt, with the object of kissing the beautiful hand which had just succored him. But the young girl, who was perhaps somewhat distrustful, and who remembered the violent attempt of the night, withdrew her hand with the frightened gesture of a child who was afraid of being bitten by a beast. Then the poor deaf man fixed on her a look of full reproach and inexpressible sadness. It would have been a touching spectacle anywhere, this beautiful, fresh, pure, and charming girl, who was at the same time so weak, thus hastening to the relief of so much misery, deformity, and malevolence. On the pillory the spectacle was sublime. The very populace were captivated by it, and began to clap their hands, crying, "'Noel! Noel!' It was at that moment that the recluse caught sight, from the window of her bowl, of the gypsy on the pillory, and hurled at her her sinister imprecation, "'Accursed be thou, daughter of Egypt! Accursed! Accursed!' End of Book Six, Chapter Four Book Six, Chapter Five of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Five. End of the Story of the Cake. La Esmeralda turned pale and descended from the pillory, staggering as she went. The voice of the recluse still pursued her. Descend, descend, thief of Egypt! Thou shalt ascend it once more. The sacked nun is in one of her tantrums," muttered the populace, and that was the end of it. For that sort of woman was feared, which rendered them sacred. People did not then willingly attack one who prayed day and night. 
The hour had arrived for removing Quasimodo. He was unbound, the crowd dispersed. Near the Grand Pont, Mahiette, who was returning with her two companions, suddenly halted. "'By the way, Eustache, what did you do with that cake?' "'Mother,' said the child, "'while you were talking with that lady in the bowl, a big dog took a bite of my cake, and then I bit it also.' "'What, sir, did you eat the whole of it?' she went on. "'Mother, it was the dog. I told him, but he would not listen to me. Then I bit into it also.' "'Tis a terrible child,' said the mother, smiling and scolding at one and the same time. "'Do you see, Udard? He already eats all the fruit from the cherry-tree in our orchard of Charlerange. So his grandfather says that will be a captain. Just let me catch you at it again, Master Eustache. Come along, you greedy fellow. End of Book Six, Chapter Five. Book Seven, Chapter One of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Seven, Chapter One The Danger of Confiding One's Secret to a Goat. Many weeks had elapsed. The first of March had arrived. The sun, which Dubartet, that classic ancestor of paraphrase, had not yet dubbed the Grand Duke of Candles, was nonetheless radiant and joyous on that account. It was one of those spring days which possesses so much sweetness and beauty that all Paris turns out into the squares and promenades and celebrates them as though they were Sundays. In those days of brilliancy, warmth, and serenity, there is a certain hour above all others, when the façade of Notre-Dame should be admired. It is the moment when the sun, already declining towards the west, looks the cathedral almost full in the face. Its rays, growing more and more horizontal, withdraw slowly from the pavement of the square and mount up the perpendicular façade whose thousand bosses in high relief they cause to start out from the shadows, while the great central rose window flames like the eye of a cyclops, inflamed with the reflections of the forge. This was the hour. Opposite the lofty cathedral, reddened by the setting sun, on the stone balcony built above the porch of a rich Gothic house, which formed the angle of the square and the rue de Parvis, several young girls were laughing and chatting with every sort of grace and mirth. From the length of the veil which fell from their pointed coif, twined with pearls, to their heels, from the fineness of the embroidered chemisette which covered their shoulders, and allowed a glimpse, according to the pleasing custom of the time, of the swell of their fair virgin bosoms, from the opulence of their under-petticoats, still more precious than their overdress, marvellous refinement, from the gauze, the silk, the velvet, with which all this was composed, and above all from the whiteness of their hands, which certified to their leisure and idleness, it was easy to divine they were noble and wealthy heiresses. They were, in fact, Demoiselle Fleur de Lis de Gondelaurier, and her companions, Diane de Christouy, Amelot de Montmichel, Colombe de Guyfontaine, and the little de Champchavrier maiden. All damsels of good birth, 
assembled at that moment at the house of the dame-widow de Gondelarier, on account of Monseigneur de Beaujot and Madame his wife, who were come to Paris in the month of April, there to choose maids of honour for the Dauphiness Marguerite, who was to be received in Picardy from the hands of the Flemings. Now all the squires for twenty leagues around were intriguing for this favour for their daughters, and a goodly number of the latter had been already brought or sent to Paris. These four maidens had been confided to the discreet and venerable charge of Madame Alois de Gondelaurier, widow of a former commander of the King's crossbowmen, who had retired with her only daughter to her house in the Place du Parvis, Notre-Dame, in Paris. The balcony on which these young girls stood opened from a chamber richly tapestried in fawn-coloured Flanders leather, stamped with golden foliage. The beams, which cut the ceiling in parallel lines, diverted the eye with a thousand eccentric painted and gilded carvings. Splendid enamels gleamed here and there on carved chests. A boar's head in faience crowned a magnificent dresser, whose two shelves announced that the mistress of the house was the wife or widow of a knight banneret. At the end of the room, by the side of a lofty chimney blazoned with arms from top to bottom, in a rich red velvet armchair, sat Dame de Gondelaurier, whose five-and-fifty years were written upon her garments no less distinctly than upon her face. Beside her stood a young man of imposing mien, although partaking somewhat of vanity and bravado, one of those handsome fellows whom all women agree to admire, although grave men, learned in physiognomy, shrugged their shoulders at them. This young man wore the garb of a captain of the king's unattached archers, which bears far too much resemblance to the costume of Jupiter, which the reader has already been enabled to admire in the first book of this history, for us to inflict upon him a second description. The demoiselles were seated, a part in the chamber, a part in the balcony, some on square cushions of Utrecht velvet with golden corners, others on stools of oak carved in flowers and figures. Each of them held on her knee a section of a great needlework tapestry, on which they were working in company, while one end of it lay upon the rush mat which covered the floor. They were chatting together in that whispering tone with the half-stifled laughs peculiar to an assembly of young girls in whose midst there is a young man, the young man whose presence served to set in play all those feminine self-conceits, appeared to pay very little heed to the matter, and, while these pretty damsels were vying with one another to attract his attention, he seemed to be chiefly absorbed in polishing the buckle of his sword-belt with his doe-skin glove. From time to time the old lady addressed him in a very low tone, and he replied as well as he was able, with a sort of awkward and constrained politeness. From the smiles and significant gestures of Dame Alois, from the glances which she threw towards her daughter Fleur-de-Lis, as she spoke low to the captain, it was easy to see that there was here a question of some betrothal concluded some marriage near at hand, no doubt, between the young man and Fleur-de-Lis. From the embarrassed coldness of the officer, it was easy to see that on his side, at least, love had no longer any part in the matter. His whole air was expressive of constraint and weariness, 
which our lieutenants of the garrison would today translate admirably as, What a beastly bore! The poor dame, very much infatuated with her daughter, like any other silly mother, did not perceive the officer's lack of enthusiasm, and strove in low tones to call his attention to the infinite grace with which fleur-de-lis used her needle or wound her skein. "'Come, little cousin,' she said to him, plucking him by the sleeve, in order to speak in his ear. "'Look at her, do! See her stoop!' "'Yes, truly,' replied the young man, and fell back into his glacial and absent-minded silence. A moment later he was obliged to bend down again, and Dame Alois said to him, "'Have you ever beheld a more gay and charming face than that of your betrothed? Can one be more white and blonde? Are not her hands perfect? And that neck! Does it not assume all the curves of the swan in ravishing fashion? How I envy you at times! And how happy you are to be a man! Naughty libertine that you are! Is not my fleur-de-lis adorably beautiful? And are you not desperately in love with her?" "'Of course,' he replied, still thinking of something else. "'But do say something,' said Madame Alois, suddenly giving his shoulder a push. "'You have grown very timid.' We can assure our readers that timidity was neither the captain's virtue nor his defect. But he made an effort to do what was demanded of him. "'Fair cousin,' he said, approaching fleur-de-lis, "'what is the subject of this tapestry-work which you are fashioning?' "'Fair cousin,' responded fleur-de-lis, in an offended tone, "'I have already told you three times. "'Tis the grotto of Neptune.' It was evident that fleur-de-lis saw much more clearly than her mother through the captain's cold and absent-minded manner he felt the necessity of making some conversation. "'And for whom is this Neptunerie destined?' "'For the Abbey of Saint-Antoine de Chappes,' answered Fleur-de-Lis, without raising her eyes. The captain took up a corner of the tapestry. "'Who, my fair cousin, is this big gendarme, who is puffing out his cheeks to their full extent and blowing a trumpet?' "'Tis Triton,' she replied. There was a rather pettish intonation in Fleur-de-Lise's laconic words. The young man understood that it was indispensable that he should whisper something in her ear, a commonplace, a gallant compliment, no matter what. Accordingly, he bent down, but he could find nothing in his imagination more tender and personal than this. "'Why does your mother always wear that surcoat with armorial designs?' like our grandmothers of the time of Charles the Seventh. Tell her, fair cousin, that tis no longer the fashion, and that the hinge and the laurel, embroidered on her robe, give her the air of a walking mantelpiece. In truth, people no longer sit thus on their banners, I assure you." Fleur-de-lis raised her beautiful eyes, full of reproach. "'Is that all of which you can assure me?' she said in a low voice. In the meantime, Dame Alois, delighted to see them thus bending towards each other and whispering, said, as she toyed with the clasps of her prayer-book, "'Touching picture of love!' 
the captain, more and more embarrassed, fell back upon the subject of the tapestry. "'Tis, in sooth, a charming work!' he exclaimed. Whereupon Colombe de Guyfontaine, another beautiful blonde, with a white skin dressed to the neck in blue damask, ventured a timid remark which she addressed to fleur-de-lis, in the hope that the handsome captain would reply to it. "'My dear Gondolaurier, have you seen the tapestries of the Hôtel de la Roche-Gaillon?' "'Is not that the hotel in which is enclosed the garden of the Langère du Louvre?' asked Diane de Christouy, with a laugh, for she had handsome teeth, and consequently laughed on every occasion. "'And where there is that big old tower of the ancient wall of Paris,' added Amelot de Montmichel, a pretty fresh and curly-headed brunette, who had a habit of sighing just as the other laughed, without knowing why. "'My dear Colombe,' interpolated Dame Alois, do you not mean the hotel which belonged to Monsieur de Bacville in the reign of King Charles the Sixth? There are indeed many superb high warp tapestries there. Charles the Sixth, Charles the Sixth, muttered the young captain, twirling his mustache. Good heavens, what old things the good dame does remember! Madame de Gondelaurier continued, Fine tapestries, in truth a work so esteemed that it passes as unrivalled. At that moment Barangère de Champchevrier, a slender little maid of seven years, who was peering into the square through the trefoils of the balcony, exclaimed, "'Oh, look, fair godmother Fleur-de-Lis, at that pretty dancer, who is dancing on the pavement and playing the tambourine in the midst of the loutish bourgeois!' The sonorous vibration of a tambourine was in fact audible. "'Some gypsy from Bohemia,' said Fleur-de-Lis, turning carelessly toward the square. "'Look! Look!' exclaimed her lively companions, and they all ran to the edge of the balcony, while Fleur-de-Lis, rendered thoughtful by the coldness of her betrothed, followed them slowly, and the latter, relieved by this incident, which put an end to an embarrassing conversation, retreated to the farther end of the room, with the satisfied air of a soldier released from duty. Nevertheless, the fair fleur-de-lises was a charming and noble service, and such it had formerly appeared to him. But the captain had gradually become blasé, the prospect of a speedy marriage cooled him more every day. Moreover, he was of a fickle disposition, and, must we say it, rather vulgar in taste. Although of very noble birth, he had contracted in his official harness more than one habit of the common trooper. The tavern and its accompaniments pleased him. He was only at his ease amid gross language, military gallantries, facile beauties, and successes yet more easy. He had, nevertheless, received from his family some education and some politeness of manner. But he had been thrown on the world too young, he had been in garrison at too early an age, and every day the polish of a gentleman became more and more effaced by the rough friction of his gendarme's cross-belt. While still continuing to visit her from time to time, from a remnant of a common respect, he felt doubly embarrassed with fleur-de-lis 
In the first place, because, in consequence of having scattered his love in all sorts of places, he had reserved very little for her. In the next place, because, amid so many stiff, formal and decent ladies, he was in constant fear lest his mouth, habituated to oaths, should suddenly take the bit in its teeth and break out into the language of the tavern. The effect can be imagined. Moreover, all this was mingled in him with great pretensions to eloquence, toilet, and a fine appearance. Let the reader reconcile these things as best he can. I am simply the historian. He had remained, therefore, for several minutes, leaning in silence against the carved jamb of the chimney, and thinking, or not thinking, when fleur-de-lis suddenly turned and addressed him. After all, the poor young girl was pouting against the dictates of her heart. "'Fair cousin, did you not speak to us of a little Bohemian whom you saved a couple of months ago, while making the patrol with the watch at night, from the hands of a dozen robbers?' "'I believe so, fair cousin,' said the captain. "'Well,' she resumed, "'perchance tis that same gypsy girl who is dancing yonder on the church square. Come and see if you recognize her, fair cousin Phoebus.' A secret desire for reconciliation was apparent in this gentle invitation which she gave him to approach her, and in the care which she took to call him by name. Captain Phoebus de Chateaupay, for it is he whom the reader has had before his eyes since the beginning of this chapter, slowly approached the balcony. "'Stay,' said Fleur-de-Lis, laying her hand tenderly on Phoebus's arm. "'Look at that little girl yonder, dancing in that circle. Is she your Bohemian?' Phoebus looked and said, "'Yes, I recognize her by her goat.' "'Oh, in fact, what a pretty little goat!' said Amolette, clasping her hands in admiration. "'Are his horns of real gold?' inquired Bérangère. Without moving from her armchair, de Malois interposed, "'Is she not one of those gypsy girls who arrived last year by the Givard gate?' "'Madame, my mother,' said Fleur-de-Lis gently, "'that gate is now called the Porte d'Enfer.' Mademoiselle de Gondolarier knew how her mother's antiquated mode of speech shocked the captain. In fact, he began to sneer, and muttered between his teeth, "'Port Gibard! Port Gibard! Tis enough to make King Charles the Sixth pass by!' "'Godmother!' exclaimed Berengere, whose eyes, incessantly in motion, had suddenly been raised to the summit of the towers of Notre-Dame. "'Who is that black man up yonder?' All the young girls raised their eyes. A man was, in truth, leaning on the balustrade which surmounted the northern tower, looking on the grave. He was a priest. His costume could be plainly discerned, and his face resting on both his hands. But he stirred no more than if he had been a statue. His eyes, intently fixed, gazed into the place. It was something like the immobility of a bird of prey who has just discovered a nest of sparrows, and is gazing at it. "'Tis Monsieur the Archdeacon of José,' said Fleur-de-Lis. "'You have good eyes if you can recognize him from here,' said the Guy Fontaine. "'How he is staring at the little dancer!' 
went on Diane de Cristouille. "'Let the gypsy beware,' said Fleur-de-Lis, "'for he loves not Egypt.' "'Tis a great shame for that man to look upon her thus,' added Amelot de Montmachel, "'for she dances delightfully.' "'Fair cousin Phoebus,' said Fleur-de-Lis suddenly, "'since you know this little gypsy, make her a sign to come up here. It will amuse us.' "'Oh, yes!' exclaimed all the young girls, clapping their hands. "'Why, tis not worth while,' replied Phoebus. "'She has forgotten me, no doubt, and I know not so much as her name. Nevertheless, as you wish it, young ladies, I will make the trial.' And, leaning over the balustrade of the balcony, he began to shout, "'Little one!' The dancer was not beating her tambourine at the moment. She turned her head towards the point whence this call proceeded, her brilliant eyes rested on Phoebus, and she stopped short. "'Little one!' repeated the captain, and he beckoned her to approach. The young girl looked at him again. Then she blushed as though a flame had mounted into her cheeks, and taking her tambourine under her arm, she made her way through the astonished spectators towards the door of the house where Phoebus was calling her with slow, tottering steps, and with the troubled look of a bird which is yielding to the fascination of a serpent. A moment later, the tapestry portiere was raised, and the gypsy appeared on the threshold of the chamber, blushing, confused, breathless, her large eyes drooping, and not daring to advance another step. Berengère clapped her hands. Meanwhile the dancer remained motionless upon the threshold. Her appearance had produced a singular effect upon these young girls. It is certain that a vague and indistinct desire to please the handsome officer animated them all, that his splendid uniform was the target of all their coquetries, and that from the moment he presented himself there existed among them a secret, suppressed rivalry, which they hardly acknowledged even to themselves but which broke forth, nonetheless, every instant in their gestures and remarks. Nevertheless, as they were all very nearly equal in beauty, they contended with equal arms, and each could hope for the victory. The arrival of the gypsy suddenly destroyed this equilibrium. Her beauty was so rare that, at the moment when she appeared at the entrance of the apartment, it seemed as though she diffused a sort of light which was peculiar to herself. In that narrow chamber, surrounded by that sombre frame of hangings and woodwork, she was incomparably more beautiful and more radiant than on the public square. She was like a torch which has suddenly been brought from broad daylight into the dark. The noble damsels were dazzled by her in spite of themselves. Each one felt herself, in some sort, wounded in her beauty. Hence their battle-front, may we be allowed the expression, was immediately altered, although they exchanged not a single word. But they understood each other perfectly. Women's instincts comprehend and respond to each other more quickly than the intelligences of men. An enemy had just arrived. All felt it. All rallied together. One drop of wine is sufficient to tinge a glass of water red to diffuse a certain degree of ill-temper throughout a whole assembly of pretty women, the arrival of a prettier woman suffices, especially when there is but one man present. 
Hence the welcome accorded to the gypsy was marvelously glacial. They surveyed her from head to foot, then exchanged glances, and all was said. They understood each other. Meanwhile the young girl was waiting to be spoken to, in such emotion that she dared not raise her eyelids. The captain was the first to break the silence. "'Upon my word,' said he, in his tone of intrepid fatuity, "'here is a charming creature. What think you of her, fair cousin?' This remark, which a more delicate admirer would have uttered in a lower tone, at least was not of a nature to dissipate the feminine jealousies which were on the alert before the gypsy. Fleur-de-lis replied to the captain with a bland affectation of disdain. "'Not bad,' the others whispered. At length Madame Alois, who was not the less jealous because she was so for her daughter, addressed the dancer. "'Approach, little one!' "'Approach, little one!' repeated with comical dignity little Berangère, who would have reached about as high as her hips. The gypsy advanced towards the noble dame. "'Fair child!' said Phoebus, with emphasis, taking several steps towards her. "'I do not know whether I have the supreme honour of being recognised by you.' She interrupted him with a smile and a look full of infinite sweetness. "'Oh, yes,' said she. "'She has a good memory,' remarked Fleur-de-lis. "'Come now,' resumed Phoebus. "'You escaped nimbly the other evening. Did I frighten you?' "'Oh, no!' said the gypsy. There was in the intonation of that, oh, no, uttered after that, oh, yes, an ineffable something which wounded Fleur-de-lis. "'You left me in your stead, my beauty,' pursued the captain, whose tongue was unloosed when speaking to a girl out of the street. "'A crabbed knave, one-eyed and hunchbacked, the bishop's bell-ringer, I believe.' I have been told that, by birth, he is the bastard of an archdeacon and a devil. He has a pleasant name. He is called Quantretemps, Pequet Fleury, Mardi Gras, I know not what, the name of some festival when the bells are pealed. So he took the liberty of carrying you off, as though you were made for beetles. Tis too much. What the devil did that screech-owl want with you? Hey, tell me! I do not know," she replied. The inconceivable impudence! A bell-ringer carrying off a wench like a vicomte! A lout poaching on the game of gentlemen! That is a rare piece of assurance! However, he paid dearly for it. Master Perrier Tortureau is the harshest groom that ever curried a knave, and I can tell you, if it will be agreeable to you that your bell-ringer's hide got a thorough dressing at his hands." "'Poor man!' said the gypsy, in whom these words revived the memory of the pillory. The captain burst out laughing. "'Cor de boeuf! Here's pity as well placed as a feather in a pig's tail! May I have as big a belly as a pope, if—' He stopped short. "'Pardon me, ladies. I believe that I was on the point of saying something foolish." "'Fie, sir,' said La Guyfontaine. "'He talks to that creature in her own tongue,' added Fleur-de-lis, in a low tone, 
her irritation increasing every moment. This irritation was not diminished when she beheld the captain, enchanted with the gypsy, and most of all with himself, execute a pirouette on his heel, repeating with coarse, naive, and soldierly gallantry, A handsome wench upon my soul! Rather savagely dressed, said Diane de Christouy, laughing to show her fine teeth. This remark was a flash of light to the others. Not being able to impugn her beauty, they attacked her costume. "'That is true,' said La Montmichel. "'What makes you run about the streets thus, without guimpe or ruff?' "'That petticoat is so short that it makes one tremble,' added La Guyfontaine. "'My dear,' continued Fleur-de-Lis, with decided sharpness, "'you will get yourself taken up by the sumptuary police for your gilded girdle.' "'Little one, little one,' resumed La Christouille, with an implacable smile, "'if you were to put respectable sleeves upon your arms, they would get less sunburned.' It was, in truth, a spectacle worthy of a more intelligent spectator than Phoebus, to see how these beautiful maidens, with their envenomed and angry tongues, wound serpent-like, and glided and writhed around the street-dancer. They were cruel and graceful. They searched and rummaged maliciously in her poor and silly toilet of spangles and tinsel. There was no end to their laughter, irony, and humiliation. Sarcasms rained down upon the gypsy, and haughty condescension and malevolent looks. One would have thought they were young Roman dames thrusting golden pins into the breast of a beautiful slave one would have pronounced them elegant greyhounds, circling with inflated nostrils round a poor woodland fawn whom the glance of their master forbade them to devour. After all, what was a miserable dancer on the public squares in the presence of these high-born maidens? They seemed to take no heed of her presence, and talked of her aloud, to her face, as of something unclean, abject, and yet, at the same time, passively pretty. The gypsy was not insensible to these pinpricks. From time to time a flush of shame, a flash of anger inflamed her eyes or her cheeks. With disdain she made that little grimace with which the reader is already familiar, but she remained motionless. She fixed on Phoebus a sad, sweet, resigned look. There was also happiness and tenderness in that gaze. One would have said that she endured for fear of being expelled. Phoebus laughed, and took the gypsy's part with a mixture of impertinence and pity. "'Let them talk, little one,' he repeated, jingling his golden spurs. "'No doubt your toilet is a little extravagant and wild, but what difference does that make with such a charming damsel as yourself?' "'Good gracious!' exclaimed the blonde Guyfontaine, drawing up her swan-like throat with a bitter smile. I see that messieurs the archers of the king's police easily take fire at the handsome eyes of gypsies. "'Why not?' said Phoebus. At this reply, uttered carelessly by the captain, like a stray stone, whose fall one does not even watch, Colombe began to laugh as well as Diane, Amelot, and Fleur-de-Lis, into whose eyes at the same time a tear started. 
The gypsy, who had dropped her eyes on the floor at the words of Colombe de Guyfontaine, raised them beaming with joy and pride and fixed them once more on Phoebus. She was very beautiful at that moment. The old dame, who was watching this scene, felt offended, without understanding why. "'Holy Virgin!' she suddenly exclaimed. "'What is it moving about my legs? Ah, the villainous beast!' It was the goat, who had just arrived, in search of his mistress, and who, in dashing towards the latter, had begun by entangling his horns in the pile of stuffs which the noble dame's garments heaped upon her feet when she was seated. This created a diversion. The gypsy disentangled his horns without uttering a word. "'Oh, here's the little goat with golden hoofs!' exclaimed Berengère, dancing with joy. The gypsy crouched down on her knees and leaned her cheek against the fondling head of the goat. One would have said that she was asking pardon for having quitted it thus. Meanwhile Diane had bent down to Colombe's ear. "'Ah, good heavens! Why did not I think of that sooner? Tis the gypsy with the goat! They say she is a sorceress, and that her goat executes very miraculous tricks!' "'Well,' said Colombe, the goat must now amuse us in its turn and perform a miracle for us." Diane and Colombe eagerly addressed the gypsy. "'Little one, make your goat perform a miracle.' "'I do not know what you mean,' replied the dancer. "'A miracle, a piece of magic, a bit of sorcery, in short.' "'I do not understand,' and she fell to caressing the pretty animal, repeating, "'Jolly, jolly!' At that moment Fleur-de-Lis noticed a little bag of embroidered leather suspended from the neck of the goat. "'What is that?' she asked of the gypsy. The gypsy raised her large eyes upon her and replied gravely, "'That is my secret.' "'I should really like to know what your secret is,' thought Fleur-de-Lis. Meanwhile the good dame had risen angrily. "'Come now, gypsy, if neither you nor your goat can dance for us, what are you doing here?" The gypsy walked slowly towards the door, without making any reply. But the nearer she approached it, the more her pace slackened. An irresistible magnet seemed to hold her. Suddenly she turned her eyes, wet with tears, towards Phoebus, and halted. "'True God!' exclaimed the captain. "'That's no way to depart. Come back and dance something for us. By the way, my sweet love, what is your name?" "'La Esmeralda,' said the dancer, never taking her eyes from him. At this strange name a burst of wild laughter broke from the young girls. "'Here's a terrible name for a young lady,' said Diane. "'You see well enough,' retorted Amelot, "'that she is an enchantress.' "'My dear,' exclaimed de Malois solemnly, your parents did not commit the sin of giving you that name at the baptismal font." In the meantime, several minutes previously, Berengère had coaxed the goat into a corner of the room with a marsh-pan-cake, without anyone having noticed her. In an instant they had become good friends. The curious child had detached the bag from the goat's neck, had opened it, and had emptied out its contents on the rush matting. It was an alphabet each letter of which was separately inscribed on a tiny block of boxwood. 
Hardly had these playthings been spread out on the matting, when the child, with surprise, beheld the goat, one of whose miracles this was, no doubt, draw out certain letters with its golden hoof, and arrange them, with gentle pushes, in a certain order. In a moment they constituted a word, which the goat seemed to have been trained to write, so little hesitation did it show in forming it and Berengère suddenly exclaimed, clasping her hands in admiration, "'Godmother Fleur-de-Lis, see what the goat has just done!' Fleur-de-Lis ran up and trembled. The letters arranged upon the floor formed this word, Phoebus. "'Was it the goat who wrote that?' she inquired in a changed voice. "'Yes, Godmother,' replied Berengère. It was impossible to doubt it the child did not know how to write. "'This is the secret,' thought Fleur-de-Lis. Meanwhile, at the child's exclamation, all had hastened up—the mother, the young girls, the gypsy, and the officer. The gypsy beheld the piece of folly which the goat had committed. She turned red, then pale, and began to tremble, like a culprit before the captain who gazed at her with a smile of satisfaction and amazement. "'Phoebus!' whispered the young girls, stupefied. "'Tis the captain's name!' "'You have a marvellous memory,' said Fleur-de-Lis to the petrified gypsy. Then, bursting into sobs, "'Oh!' she stammered mournfully, hiding her face in both her beautiful hands. "'She is a magician!' and she heard another, and a still more bitter voice at the bottom of her heart, saying, "'She is a rival!' She fell fainting. "'My daughter! My daughter!' cried the terrified mother. "'Begone, you gypsy of hell!' In a twinkling, La Esmeralda gathered up the unlucky letters, made a sign to Jolly, and went out through one door, while Fleur-de-Lis was being carried out through the other. Captain Phoebus, on being left alone, hesitated for a moment between the two doors. Then he followed the gypsy. End of Book 7, Chapter 1「Book 7, Chapter 2 of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Seven, Chapter Two A Priest and a Philosopher Are Two Different Things. The priest, whom the young girls had observed at the top of the North Tower, leaning over the place and so attentive to the dance of the gypsy, was, in fact, Archdeacon Claude Frollo. Our readers have not forgotten the mysterious cell which the archdeacon had reserved for himself in that tower. I do not know, by the way be it said, whether it be not the same, the interior of which can be seen to-day through a little square window, opening to the east at the height of a man above the platform from which the towers spring, a bare and dilapidated den, whose badly plastered walls are ornamented here and there, at the present day, with some wretched yellow engravings representing the façades of cathedrals. I presume that this hole is jointly inhabited by bats and spiders, and that, consequently, it wages a double war of extermination on the flies. Every day, an hour before sunset, 
the archdeacon ascended the staircase to the tower and shut himself up in this cell, where he sometimes passed whole nights. That day, at the moment when, standing before the low door of his retreat, he was fitting into the lock the complicated little key which he always carried about him in the purse suspended to his side, a sound of tambourine and castanets had reached his ear. These sounds came from the Place du Parvis. The cell, as we have already said, had only one window opening upon the rear of the church. Claude Frollo had hastily withdrawn the key, an instant later he was on the top of the tower, in the gloomy and pensive attitude in which the maidens had seen him. There he stood, grave, motionless, absorbed in one look and one thought. All Paris lay at his feet, with the thousand spires of its edifices and its circular horizon of gentle hills with its river winding under its bridges, and its people moving to and fro through its streets, with the clouds of its smoke, with the mountainous chain of its roofs which presses Notre-Dame in its doubled folds. But out of all the city the archdeacon gazed at only one corner of the pavement, the Place du Parvis, in all that throng at but one figure, the gypsy. It would have been difficult to say what was the nature of this look, and whence proceeded the flame that flashed from it. It was a fixed gaze, which was nevertheless full of trouble and tumult. And from the profound immobility of his whole body, barely agitated at intervals by an involuntary shiver, as a tree is moved by the wind, from the stiffness of his elbows, more marble than the balustrade on which they leaned, or the sight of the petrified smile which contracted his face, one would have said that nothing living was left about Claude Frollo except his eyes. The gypsy was dancing. She was twirling her tambourine on the tip of her finger and tossing it into the air as she danced Provençal sarabands. Agile, light, joyous, and unconscious of the formidable gaze which descended perpendicularly upon her head. The crowd was swarming around her. From time to time a man accoutred in red and yellow made them form into a circle, and then returned, seated himself on a chair a few paces from the dancer, and took the goat's head on his knees. The man seemed to be the gypsy's companion. Claude Frollo could not distinguish his features from his elevated post. From the moment when the archdeacon caught sight of this stranger, his attention seemed divided between him and the dancer and his face became more and more gloomy. All at once he rose upright, and a quiver ran through his whole body. "'Who is that man?' he muttered between his teeth. "'I have always seen her alone before.' Then he plunged down beneath the tortuous vault of the spiral staircase, and once more descended. As he passed the door of the bell-chamber, which was ajar, he saw something which struck him. He beheld Quasimodo who, leaning through an opening of one of those slate penthouses which resemble enormous blinds, appeared also to be gazing at the place. He was engaged in so profound a contemplation that he did not notice the passage of his adopted father. His savage eye had a singular expression. It was a charmed, tender look. "'This is strange,' murmured Claude. "'Is it the gypsy at whom he is thus gazing?' He continued his descent. 
At the end of a few minutes, the anxious archdeacon entered upon the place from the door at the base of the tower. "'What has become of the gypsy girl?' he said, mingling with the group of spectators which the sound of the tambourine had collected. "'I know not,' replied one of his neighbours. "'I think that she has gone to make some of her fandangos in the house opposite, whither they have called her.' In the place of the gypsy, on the carpet, whose arabesques had seemed to vanish but a moment previously by the capricious figures of her dance, the archdeacon no longer beheld any one but the red and yellow man, who, in order to earn a few testers in his turn, was walking round the circle with his elbows on his hips, his head thrown back, his face red, his neck outstretched, with a chair between his teeth. To the chair he had fastened a cat, which a neighbour had lent, and which was spitting in great affright. "'Notre Dame!' exclaimed the archdeacon, at the moment when the juggler, perspiring heavily, passed in front of him with his pyramid of chair and his cat. "'What is Master Pierre Gringois doing here?' The harsh voice of the archdeacon threw the poor fellow into such a commotion that he lost his equilibrium, together with his whole edifice, and the chair and the cat tumbled pell-mell upon the heads of the spectators, in the midst of inextinguishable hootings. It is probable that Master Pierre Gringois, for it was indeed he, would have had a sorry account to settle with the neighbour who owned the cat, and all the bruised and scratched faces which surrounded him, if he had not hastened to profit by the tumult to take refuge in the church, whither Claude Frollo had made him a sign to follow him. The cathedral was already dark and deserted. The side-aisles were full of shadows, and the lamps of the chapels began to shine out like stars, so black had the vaulted ceiling become. Only the great rose-window of the façade, whose thousand colours were steeped in a ray of horizontal sunlight, glittered in the gloom like a mass of diamonds, and threw its dazzling reflection to the other end of the nave. When they had advanced a few paces, Dom Claude placed his back against a pillar and gazed intently at Gringoire. The gaze was not the one which Gringoire feared, ashamed as he was of having been caught by a grave and learned person in the costume of a buffoon. There was nothing mocking or ironical in the priest's glance. It was serious, tranquil, piercing. The archdeacon was the first to break the silence. Come now, Master Pierre, you are to explain many things to me. And first of all, how comes it that you have not been seen for two months, and that now one finds you in the public squares, in a fine equipment in truth? Motley red and yellow, like a Codebec apple? Monsieur, said Gringoire piteously, it is, in fact, an amazing accoutrement. You see me no more comfortable in it than a cat quaffed with a calabash. Tis very ill done, I am conscious, to expose messieurs, the sergeants of the watch, to the liability of a cudgelling beneath this cassock the humorous of a Pythagorean philosopher. But what would you have, my reverend master? Tis the fault of my ancient jerkin, which abandoned me in cowardly wise at the beginning of the winter, under the pretext that it was falling into tatters, and that it required repose in the basket of a rag-picker. What is one to do? Civilization has not yet arrived at the point where one can go stark naked, as ancient Diogenes wished. 
add that a very cold wind was blowing, and tis not in the month of January that one can successfully attempt to make humanity take this new step. This garment presented itself, I took it, and I left my ancient black smock, which, for a hermetic like myself, was far from being hermetically closed. Behold me, then, in the garments of a stage-player, like Saint Genest. What would you have? Tis an eclipse. Apollo himself tended the flocks of Admetus. "'Tis a fine profession that you are engaged in,' replied the archdeacon. "'I agree, my master, that tis better to philosophize and poetize, to blow the flame in the furnace, or to receive it from carry-cats on a shield. So when you addressed me, I was as foolish as an ass before a turnspit. But what would you have, monsieur? One must eat every day, and the finest Alexandrine verses are not worth a bit of brie cheese. Now I made for Madame Marguerite of Flanders that famous epithalamium, as you know, and the city will not pay me, under the pretext that it was not excellent, as though one could give a tragedy of Sophocles for four crowns. Hence I was on the point of dying with hunger. Happily I found that I was rather strong in the jaw, so I said to this jaw, Perform some feats of strength and of equilibrium, nourish thyself, ali ti ipsam. A pack of beggars, who have become my good friends, have taught me twenty sorts of Herculean feats, and now I give my teeth every evening the bread which they have earned during the day by the sweat of my brow. After all, concede, I grant that it is a sad employment for my intellectual faculties, and that man is not made to pass his life in beating the tambourine and biting chairs. But, reverend master, it is not sufficient to pass one's life. One must earn the means for life." Dom Claude listened in silence. All at once his deep-set eye assumed so sagacious and penetrating an expression that Gringoire felt himself, so to speak, searched to the bottom of the soul by that glance. "'Very good, Master Pierre. But how comes it that you are now in company with that gypsy dancer?' "'In faith,' said Gringoire, "'tis because she is my wife, and I am her husband.' The priest's gloomy eyes flashed into flame. "'Have you done that, you wretch?' he cried seizing Gringoire's arm with fury. Have you been so abandoned by God as to raise your hand against that girl?" "'On my chance of paradise, Monseigneur,' replied Gringoire, trembling in every limb, "'I swear to you that I have never touched her, if that is what disturbs you.' "'Then why do you talk of husband and wife?' said the priest. Gringoire made haste to relate to him as succinctly as possible all that the reader already knows his adventure in the court of miracles, and the broken crock marriage. It appeared, moreover, that this marriage had led to no results whatever, and that each evening the gypsy girl cheated him of his nuptial rite as on the first day. "'Tis a mortification,' he said in conclusion, "'but that is because I have had the misfortune to wed a virgin.' "'What do you mean?' demanded the archdeacon, who had been gradually appeased by this recital. "'Tis very difficult to explain,' replied the poet. "'It is a superstition. 
My wife is, according to what an old thief, who is called among us the Duke of Egypt, has told me, a foundling or a lost child, which is the same thing. She wears on her neck an amulet, which, it is affirmed, will cause her to meet her parents some day, but which will lose its virtue if the young girl loses hers. Hence it follows that both of us remain very virtuous." "'So,' resumed Claude, whose brow cleared more and more, "'you believe, Master Pierre, that this creature has not been approached by any man?' What would you have a man do, Dom Claude, as against a superstition? She has got that in her head. I assuredly esteem as a rarity this nun-like prudery, which is preserved untamed amid those bohemian girls who are so easily brought into subjection. But she has three things to protect her. The Duke of Egypt, who has taken her under his safeguard, reckoning, perchance, on selling her to some gay abbé, all his tribe, who hold her in singular veneration, like a Notre-Dame, and a certain tiny poniard, which the buxom dame always wears about her in some nook, in spite of the ordinances of the provost, and which one causes to fly out into her hands by squeezing her waist. Tis a proud wasp, I can tell you." The archdeacon pressed Gringoire with questions. La Esmeralda, in the judgment of Gringoire, was an inoffensive and charming creature, pretty, with the exception of a pout which was peculiar to her, a naive and passionate damsel, ignorant of everything and enthusiastic about everything, not yet aware of the difference between a man and a woman, even in her dreams. Made like that, wild, especially over dancing, noise, the open air, a sort of woman-bee with invisible wings on her feet and living in a whirlwind. She owed this nature to the wandering life which she had always led. Gringoire had succeeded in learning that, while a mere child, she had traversed Spain and Catalonia, even to Sicily. He believed that she had even been taken by the caravan of Zingari, of which she formed a part, to the kingdom of Algiers, a country situated in Achaea, which country adjoins on one side Albania and Greece, on the other the Sicilian Sea, which is the road to Constantinople. The Bohemians, said Gringoire, were vassals of the King of Algiers, in his quality of chief of the White Moors. One thing is certain, that La Esmeralda had come to France while still very young by way of Hungary. From all these countries the young girl had brought back fragments of queer jargons, songs, and strange ideas, which made her language as motley as her costume, half Parisian, half African. However, the people of the quarters which she frequented loved her for her gaiety, her daintiness, her lively manners, her dances, and her songs. She believed herself to be hated, in all the city, by but two persons, of whom she often spoke in terror the sacked nun of the Tour Roland, a villainous recluse who cherished some secret grudge against these gypsies, and who cursed the poor dancer every time that the latter passed before her window, and a priest, who never met her without casting at her looks and words which frightened her. The mention of this last circumstance disturbed the archdeacon greatly, though Gringoire paid no attention to his perturbation. 
to such an extent had the two months sufficed to cause the heedless poet to forget the singular details of the evening on which he had met the gypsy and the presence of the archdeacon in it all. Otherwise the little dancer feared nothing. She did not tell fortunes, which protected her against those trials for magic which were so frequently instituted against gypsy women. And then Gringoire held the position of her brother, if not of her husband. After all, the philosopher endured this sort of platonic marriage very patiently. It meant a shelter and bread at least. Every morning he set out from the lair of the thieves, generally with the gypsy. He helped her make her collection of targes and little blanks in the squares. Each evening he returned to the same roof with her, allowed her to bolt herself into her little chamber, and slept the sleep of the just. A very sweet existence, taking it all in all, he said, and well adapted to reverie. And then, on his soul and conscience, the philosopher was not very sure that he was madly in love with the gypsy. He loved her goat almost as dearly. It was a charming animal, gentle, intelligent, clever, a learned goat. Nothing was more common in the Middle Ages than these learned animals, which amazed people greatly, and often led their instructors to the stake. But the witchcraft of the goat with the golden hoofs was a very innocent species of magic. Gringoire explained them to the archdeacon, whom these details seemed to interest deeply. In the majority of cases it was sufficient to present the tambourine to the goat in such or such a manner, in order to obtain from him the trick desired. He had been trained to this by the gypsy, who possessed in these delicate arts so rare a talent that two months had sufficed to teach the goat to write, with movable letters, the word Phoebus. Phoebus, said the priest. Why, Phoebus? I know not, replied Gringoire. Perhaps it is a word which she believes to be endowed with some magic and secret virtue. She often repeats it in a low tone when she thinks that she is alone. Are you sure, persisted Claude, with his penetrating glance, that it is only a word and not a name? The name of whom? said the poet. How should I know? said the priest. That is what I imagine, monsieur. These bohemians are something like Gerbers, and adore the sun. Hence Phoebus. That does not seem so clear to me as to you, Master Pierre. After all, that does not concern me. Let her mumble her Phoebus at her pleasure. One thing is certain, that Jolly loves me almost as much as he does her. Who is Jolly? The goat. The archdeacon dropped his chin into his hand, and appeared to reflect for a moment. All at once he turned abruptly to Gringoire once more. "'And do you swear to me that you have not touched her?' "'Whom?' said Gringoire. "'The goat?' "'No, that woman!' "'My wife? I swear to you that I have not!' "'You are often alone with her?' "'A good hour every evening.' Poor Claude frowned. Oh, oh, solus cum sola, non cogita buntur orare paternaster. Upon my soul, I could say the pater and the Ave Maria, and the credo in Deum Patrum Omnipotentum, without her paying any more attention to me than a chicken to a church. 
swear to me by the body of your mother, repeated the archdeacon violently, that you have not touched that creature with even the tip of your finger. I will also swear it by the head of my father, for the two things have more affinity between them. But, my reverend master, permit me a question in my turn. Speak, sir. What concern is it of yours? The archdeacon's pale face became as crimson as the cheek of a young girl. He remained for a moment without answering. Then, with visible embarrassment, Listen, Master Pierre Gringoire, you are not yet damned, so far as I know. I take an interest in you, and wish you well. Now the least contact with that Egyptian of the demon would make you the vassal of Satan. You know that tis always the body which ruins the soul. Woe to you if you approach that woman, that is all." "'I tried once,' said Gringoire, scratching his ear. It was on the first day. But I got stung." "'You were so audacious, Master Pierre,' and the priest's brow clouded over again. On another occasion," continued the poet, with a smile, I peeped through the keyhole before going to bed, and I beheld the most delicious dame in her shift that ever made a bed creak under her bare foot. "'Go to the devil!' cried the priest, with a terrible look, and giving the amazed Gringoire a push on the shoulders, he plunged with long strides under the gloomiest arcades of the cathedral. End of Book 7, Chapter 2book 7 chapter 3 of the hunchback of notre dame by victor hugo this librivox recording is in the public domain book 7 chapter 3 the bells after the morning in the pillory the neighbors of notre dame thought they noticed that quasimodo's ardor for ringing had grown cool formerly there had been peals for every occasion long morning serenades, which lasted from prime to compline, peals from the belfry for a high mass, rich scales drawn over the smaller bells for a wedding, for a christening, and a mingling in the air like a rich embroidery of all sorts of charming sounds. The old church, all vibrating and sonorous, was in a perpetual joy of bells. One was constantly conscious of the presence of a spirit of noise and caprice, who sang through all those mouths of brass. Now that spirit seemed to have departed. The cathedral seemed gloomy, and gladly remained silent. Festivals and funerals had the simple peal, dry and bare, demanded by the ritual, nothing more. Of the double noise which constitutes a church, the organ within, the bell without, the organ alone remained. One would have said that there was no longer a musician in the belfry. Quasimodo was always there, nevertheless. What, then, had happened to him? Was it that the shame and despair of the pillory still lingered in the bottom of his heart, that the lashes of his tormentor's whip reverberated unendingly in his soul, and that the sadness of such treatment had wholly extinguished in him even his passion for the bells? Or was it that Marie had a rival in the heart of the bell-ringer of Notre-Dame, and that the great Belle and her fourteen sisters were neglected for something more amiable and more beautiful? 
it chanced that, in the year of grace 1482, Annunciation Day fell on Tuesday, the twenty-fifth of March. That day the air was so pure and light that Quasimodo felt some returning affection for his bells. He therefore ascended the northern tower, while the beetle below was opening wide the doors of the church, which were then enormous panels of stout wood covered with leather, bordered with nails of gilded iron, and framed in carvings very artistically elaborated. On arriving in the lofty bell-chamber, Quasimodo gazed for some time at the six bells and shook his head sadly, as though groaning over some foreign element which had interposed itself in his heart between them and him. And when he had set them to swinging, when he felt that cluster of bells moving under his hand, when he saw, for he did not hear it, the palpitating octave ascend and descend that sonorous scale, like a bird hopping from branch to branch, when the demon music, that demon who shakes a sparkling bundle of strette, trills and arpeggios, had taken possession of the poor deaf man, he became happy once more. He forgot everything, and his heart expanding made his face beam. He went and came, he beat his hands together, he ran from rope to rope, he animated the six singers with voice and gesture like the leader of an orchestra who is urging on intelligent musicians. "'Go on,' said he, "'go on, go on, Gabriel, pour out all thy noise into the place, tis a festival to-day.' No laziness, Thibault, thou art relaxing. Go on, go on, then. Art thou rusted, thou sluggard? That is well. Quick, quick, let not thy clapper be seen. Make them all deaf like me. That's it, Thibault, bravely done. Guillaume, Guillaume, thou art the largest, and Pasquier is the smallest, and Pasquier does best. Let us wager that those who hear him will understand him better than they understand thee. Good, good, my Gabriel, stoutly, more stoutly. Eli, what are you doing up aloft there? You too, Mano. I do not see you making the least shred of noise. What is the meaning of those beaks of copper which seem to be gaping when they should sing? Come, work now. Tis the feast of the Annunciation. The sun is fine, the chime must be fine also. Poor Guillaume, thou art all out of breath, my big fellow." He was wholly absorbed in spurring on his bells, all six of which vied with each other in leaping and shaking their shiny haunches, like a noisy team of Spanish mules, pricked on here and there by the apostrophes of the muleteer. All at once, on letting his glance fall between the large slate scales which covered the perpendicular wall of the bell-tower at a certain height, he beheld on the square a young girl, fantastically dressed, stop, spread out on the ground a carpet, on which a small goat took up its post, and a group of spectators collect around her. This sight suddenly changed the course of his ideas, and congealed his enthusiasm as a breath of air congeals melted rosin. He halted, turned his back to the bells, and crouched down behind the projecting roof of slate, fixing upon the dancer that dreamy, sweet, and tender look which had already astonished the archdeacon on one occasion. Meanwhile the forgotten bells died away abruptly and altogether, to the great disappointment of the lovers of bell-ringing, 
who were listening in good faith to the peal from above the Pont du Change, and who went away dumbfounded, like a dog who had been offered a bone and given a stone. End of Book 7, Chapter 3 What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.